Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, here we are again. Can you believe it's been a week already? You know, we started doing this hour almost by accident. And uh, I I forget, we had a guest cancel or something. I don't remember what it was. And uh, sure enough, went well. Figured, why why don't we do it again the following week and the following week? And it became popular. And my wife, among others, said she didn't think that we could do this week after week and still come up with interesting questions. But sure enough, this hour has become one of our highest rated and most popular hours of the week. That's right. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Whatever you have questions about, be it film, television, books, business, radio, the business of radio, cocktails, advice... My personal history, pro wrestling, gambling, Atlantic City, local politics, national politics, restaurants, New York, the criminal justice system at large, aliens, the mob, hypothetical questions of any type, my personal preferences on anything, relationships, baseball, the culture at large, religion, foreign policy, you name it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. There are currently Four open lines. Now, the way we do this, whoever comes up with the most interesting, most creative question for this for the next hour, as determined by Alex Barnard, Kenneth and Matt Blaze, we will give that person a complimentary other side of midnight cap. So that'll be fun. And you never really know what's going to happen on these uh, on these particular Ask Frank Anythings. You know, um, the New York Post has an article that Jenna Sims, who I have to confess, I didn't even really know who this person is, but apparently it's somebody who's very popular that everybody, everybody, all the young people know. And she was doing an Instagram Ask Me Anything on Wednesday. She's the founder of something called the Pageant of Hope, and she revealed that she had images from her lingerie-clad photo shoot printed onto the inside of Brooks. Kopka's jacket when they got married this past summer. So that's pretty interesting. I'm not sure what question exactly prompted that response, but it was interesting to me that uh, it just goes to show when we do these Ask Frank Anythings, you never know what to expect. 800-848-9222, open lines, which is rare. We usually never have any open lines throughout the entirety of this hour. So if you've always dreamed of asking me a question, now's the time. Also, uh, we're going to talk movies with Debbie Schlossel. In our fourth hour and in our third hour, my friend Barry Goldsmith is going to be here. We're going to talk travel and a bunch of other things. So uh, look, we got an action-packed show. Usually I try to keep the um, 
Friday shows light in terms of guests, but I still have this frog in my throat, as you could hear. So it's nice to have uh, some other people as guests so I don't have to talk for all four hours. 800-848-9222. William is in Asbury. Hello, William. Hey, Mr. Uh, Moreno. Uh, who was your favorite wrestler, pro wrestler? Mine was The Undertaker. Who was yours? Uh, well, I have a lot of respect for The Undertaker, but not even close. My favorite wrestler of all time is the nature boy, Ric Flair. To be the man! You gotta beat the man! I'm the man. He is the greatest, as far as I'm concerned. Not only uh, an incredible in-ring technician, but a guy who was just an incredible performer, as a guy that had uh, such charisma, the way that he would turn a phrase, the way that he would perform. I don't know that I've ever seen as unique a combination of talents in one human being as I have with Ric Flair. The guy was the greatest one-take actor in the world. He was a terrific technical wrestler. He also, um, he could do a lot of different aspects of wrestling. Other guys, you know, other guys, they look great. And Ric Flair looked very good in his day. They look great, uh, but they don't know the difference between a wrist lock and a wrist watch. Uh, Flair could do it all. Inside the the ring, you'd see him. You'd see him doing a, a submission hold. You'd see him, um, t- you know, uh, bleeding from the forehead. You'd see him doing a high fly move. He could take a chair shot. He could. Uh, he, he was great. He was great, and he was. I always loved him mostly as a heel, but he also could play that face role, especially in uh, in Charlotte and the North Carolina area, as well as anybody. To me, there's nobody like Ric Flair. And he lived his gimmick. He really did. And now, I'm sure for the sake of his family, that wasn't always a positive thing. But as a wrestling fan, you got the sense that there that while it was a show on the one hand, that there was nobody more authentic, oh, authentic than Ric Flair. 800-848-9222. John is in Garden City. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Quick question to ask you about programming. I've always wondered about this. Um, a lot of times I listen to your, your station in general. You know, have these segments that come on quickly. And uh, and lately, especially with the with uh, ex President Trump, um, these very negative headlines come up. Is that written in house, or that comes across some kind of like some kind of system, uh, program you guys uh, uh, subscribe to? Because it's just a constant like. Well, can you, can you give me to, can you give me an example? Yeah, I don't know in particular. Like you know, there's, there's the raid. Uh, it's, uh, I can't think of a specific way, but it's never like a, a counteracting response or like even like a, a position that represents the, uh, the 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 narrative that goes that's currently out there from the, the mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, like I, I'd have to. I'd have to. It follows suit. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah I guess you know, I'd have to know what specific news story or headline uh, you're talking about to answer your question. But I, I would think it's constant. You, yeah, well, so give me one example. I, I can't think of right now because okay. I'm not, I'm not right, pretty. But, it happens all the time. But all right, well, if, you, if you if you think of something this week, if you hear something, write it down. Let me know. We'll play it and we'll we'll go and and analyze how that headline came to be. I will say a couple of things, John. Um, if you listen to the programming on this station, I think you'd be hard pressed not to say that the overwhelming majority of the station is pro-Trump commentary, right? So if there's a news uh, headline that, um, that I don't know, I, I don't, again, without you giving an example, it's difficult for me to answer it. But let's say there's a news headline that you perceive to be uh, against Trump. Um, there's then two hours of a commentator or a host 
rebutting that 20 seconds. So I don't think the problem with the radio station that you're listening to is that there's not enough of a pro-Trump perspective. I don't think that's the problem at all. I think if you want to find a pro-Trump perspective, this radio station has plenty, plenty. And as you heard from Brian Kilmeade when I spoke to him yesterday, so many of Trump's problems, not not the latest situation with uh, Letitia James, but so many of Trump's problems are self-inflicted, right? I mean, had he not taken all these classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, there would have been no raid on Mar-a-Lago. So... Um, and, and he still offered no no reason as to why he's taken them. So, um, oh, again, it reminds me of what Nixon said. Nixon said, I think it was in the David Frost interview when he was talking about his enemies. He said, I gave them the knife, but they stuck it in and twisted it with relish. And I think that's kind of what you see with, with Trump. Um, does the other side go a little too far at times? Sure. Sure, but Trump really does give them every opportunity to stick that knife in and twist it with relish. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Peter in Manhattan. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank. Uh, first, let's wait until the facts come out. I agree with you. With, with chamber. Anyway, my question to you is, you often say that Howard Stern is your, one of your idols, Wait, wait, hear me out. Let me ask the question. He is probably one of the most vile, vicious people in the world. When a little boy was raped by his father, him and Gilbert Gottfried was on there making jokes. Why do you admire him? What's missing missing in you that you can't see this guy was evil? uh, Well, I definitely don't think he's evil, Peter. Number one. Uh, I would not say Howard Stern is my idol. He's somebody that I enjoy listening to on the radio, just as I enjoyed listening to Bob Grant, uh, Rush Limbaugh, Jay Diamond, uh, Curtis and Kuby, a lot Richard Bay, a lot of people over the years, right? Uh, Doug McIntyre. He's somebody that I enjoy listening to. Tom Likas. um, I'm not – all the people that I just mentioned have said a whole bunch of controversial things over the years. What I am not going to do is take the worst thing – that any of them have ever said, according to you, and then defend it as if I've said it. If you have an issue with something that I've said, I'm happy to explain why I've said it. Um, But uh, I'm not going to go back and analyze 40 years of Howard Stern or 35 years of Rush Limbaugh or anybody else. So as far as what's missing in me, I'll leave you to be the judge of that, Peter. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Garden City. Hello, Mark. How's it going, Frank? It's going well. Thanks. Frank, I wanted to ask you, um, Frank McKay from your station out in Suffolk County, the 107 station, was on with you last November, shortly after the election in which the Republicans won big out in Suffolk County. And Frank McKay, in talking about the Gilgo Beach murders, which he's somewhat of an authority on, I think, he made the comments to you that he thought within 30 days of that election – that high-ranking figures from the Democrat Party would be resigning. And I think he said he thought there would be arrests in the Gilgo Beach killings. We're almost you know, coming up to November again shortly. Have you heard any updates? Because I have heard nothing you know, about I, anything. I actually have, and I think that you're going to see some major news on that within the next uh, 30 to 60 days. And uh, if, we, if we're here two months from now and you still have heard nothing – then I would be very, very surprised. 
Frank, uh, do you think it'll be along the lines of what he was saying? Uh, major figures resigning. I, 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 and I don't know about that. Uh, I do think. Uh, look, look, I don't want to speculate because I don't want to get in front of what the new, what the DA's right. office is doing. But I will say, I think having a new DA in Suffolk County, I think, is going to make every difference in the world in terms of uh, the the results of this particular uh, investigation. We'll see what happens, though. 800-848-9222. By the way, if you're listening to us on our new station, WCBM, in Baltimore at 680 a.m., the way this particular hour works, our first hour of our last show of the week, we allow you to ask a question of your choosing. And, you know, the rest of the week I pick the topics. This is one week where it's on you, where you can pick uh, whatever question you want to ask on any subject within reason. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Pete is in Piscataway. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Hey, Frank, are there any retail stores that are gone now, like gone out of business, that you miss shopping at? Um, You know, I'm, I've never been a, a big shopper. I would get, you know, I I prob I probably do miss um, the Wiz. Nobody be- beats the Wiz. I think I miss that one. I miss Walden Books. Um, I know. Uh, I think Borders is gone too. I used to really enjoy going to Borders. I think. Um, I think that uh, I know Toys R Us is back as part of Macy's, but uh, I definitely miss um, Toys R Us the way it was incarnated. Those are the ones that most immediately uh, come to mind. I'll tell you what I miss uh, a great deal, Pete, and thanks for the call. Restaurants. There are so many great restaurants and bars over the years that have closed that I really miss. Um, The most recent one that comes to mind is Forlini's, but there are many, many great restaurants and old school bars, especially in New York. But I'm sure that's true all over the country. That I missed. We'll continue with your questions in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Waitresses, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno answering your questions on any subject as we do each and every week at this time as part of the other side of midnight proudly presents ask Frank ask Frank anything ask Frank anything ask Frank anything and whoever comes up with the most interesting most creative question you can uh, expect as determined by Matt Blaze Alex Barnard and Kenneth we will give you a prize of some sort 800-848-9222. Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman. Hi, Frank. Um, Hi. When the Russians first nuclear strike New York City and the majority of people mm-hmm. are killed, 
yet you survive, what would you do and where will you go? Well, I guess that would depend on the circumstance. I, I mean, uh, uh, hopefully this radio station would survive in some circumstance and I could mm-hmm. – uh, maybe I'd have to relocate where I do the show from, but I would uh, hopefully be able to continue to do the show. I'm hoping my wife and child survive. And um, I, I'm not sure um, – you know, I'm not sure what the nuclear fallout issues would be. I remember those PSAs that the city of New York was putting out a, a couple of months ago where it said your best chance of surviving a nuclear attack was to go indoors. Now, I'm not sure yeah. quite how accurate that advice was, uh, but I would try to remain indoors in the event of a, a nuclear attack. But uh, if we had to mm-hmm. leave, then uh, – look, I'm quite fond of Atlantic City. I've said that before. And uh, there's a lot of other places. I have a lot of family in Pennsylvania – Maybe I would go there. There's no shortage of places that I would go. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Yeah, hi, Frank. Good morning. You know, I just wanted to ask you if you agree. Uh, I believe the governor, uh, New York State governor, has done a disservice to the voters by coming out recently and saying that she would only debate her opponent, Congressman Zeldin, once. I understand she doesn't – she has the lead that she doesn't have to have four or five debates. But I think it should be more than one, at least two. Do you agree? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I'd love to see six debates. Right? But what we see, what we generally see with frontrunners is we see them not wanting to debate um, their opponent to not give them a platform. And in the last couple of gubernatorial elections, we've seen mostly one debate, right? Um, the, and that, in a lot of elections, we see no debates. In um, 1998, when Governor Pataki ran against Peter Vallone and Tom Golisano, there was no debate. In 94, with Mario Cuomo against Pataki and Golisano, no debate. 2002, there was one debate and included all six candidates. 2006, I think there was one debate with Spitzer and uh, Faso. 2010, there was one debate with all six candidates. Um, and th- a lot of times the front runner, and this is a very popular Cuomo strategy, both Mario and Andrew, the front runner loves to include those third party candidates so it doesn't provide much of an opportunity for a one on one on a controversial issue. But this year, there are no third party candidates, so they can't pull that. But yes, I think uh, it says a lot about Kathy Hochul that she is ducking from the opportunity to defend her record before the people of the state of New York. It, it, she should be, she's asking for our vote. She should be proud of her record and even prouder of her vision for what she wants to do for the next four years. I think it says a great deal that she's done whatever she can to not debate. It certainly affects my vote. 800-848-9222. Mario is in Manhattan. Hello, Mario. Yes, sir. Uh, My question concerns Norm Layden taking the director of the news department now. And um, my questions are, how come they didn't do that initially instead of giving it to uh, Lori, what was her name, Serrani? And and is she out of the department now? Well, I, you know, I really don't know, Mario. I think, uh, I, I, you know, I'm just guessing, but uh, I know Noam was at another radio station, so maybe he had a contractual obligation there. And uh, I know Lydia is very busy with her on-air commitments, So, uh, I, and I know she does a podcast, but I'm just guessing it, my part. When it comes to decisions about management or upper management or anything like that, 
I I don't get consulted. Uh, nobody nobody chats with me about this stuff, and that's fine. They shouldn't. I'm focused on my little four hours of the day, which I'm happy to have. I don't need to be involved in stuff that doesn't it, that I'm not concerned with. You know, when I found out that Noam Layden was being hired, when they sent out an email to the whole company announcing it, and Noam's a friend of mine for uh, 17 years, so uh, I would have thought I would have heard. Um, <laughs> sooner than I did, but I didn't. 800-848-9222. George is in Connecticut. Hello, George. All right. George. Good morning. Morning. I'd like to ask you what your interpretation is of uh, Curtis's tagline of uh, throwing nickels like uh, manhole covers. Well, it means you're cheap. It means you're, you're, um, it means you're careful with money. It means you're frugal. That's it. Yeah, I mean, think of how difficult it is to throw a manhole cover. It takes a lot of effort. So if you're throwing nickels around like manhole covers, that means something that um, if you're taking the metaphor literally, and Curtis is very good with those metaphors, if you take the metaphor literally, that means you're throwing 20 manhole covers, or it's as difficult for you to part with a nickel as it is to throw a manhole cover. So that's that's what that is. 800-848-9222. Ed is in Westchester. Hello, Ed. Hey, Frank. How are you doing? I'm um, great. I, I'm cur- I have to say I'm curious about your relationship with uh, John Gotti Jr. You seem like a really middle-of-the-road kind of guy, a really nice guy, and yet you seem to be friends with a mobster. And I don't, I don't quite understand how that happened or what your relationship with, uh, with him is. I was curious about that. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one that I've um, that I've answered a couple times before over the years. But I'll do my best to answer it again now. So, I um, so I first met John Gotti Jr. in the course of covering his his trial, and or really when he was indicted in uh, two thousand four. 2005. And at the time I was working with um, Curtis Lee and Ron Kuby, and they were not able to go to the trial each day because Ron had a law practice after the radio show and Curtis was a witness in that case. So um, he was not able to be there because of uh, something called witness sequestration. So they would send me every day and I would then report on the radio about what I was seeing. And um, one, I thought the government's case was very weak and I, you know, I said so. Um, and then, you know, that trial went on for eight weeks, right? So in the course of being around someone for eight weeks, you sort of get to know them a little bit. Now, that was in the fir- that was one trial. Then that same process played out another three times. Another there were four over the course of two years. There were four trials of between five weeks and nine weeks. So when you spend every day with someone, when you're in the cafeteria together and you get to know them, there does become a uh, social dynamic that gets to build. And if you've, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing you probably haven't met John, but if you've met John at any point in the last 17 years, it's very clear that John Gotti Jr. has nothing whatsoever to do with organized crime. And if you look at the evidence that came out in that trial, a couple of things were very clear to me. One, that the defense that what John did was in terms of his decision to leave the mob, leave Cosa Nostra, was an incredibly brave one because it actually resulted in a threat on his life, uh, sanctioned not only by the Gambino crime family, but approved by John Sonny Vranzese, the head of the Colombo crime family. So I gave him a lot of credit for that, unlike his father, who you never hear me praise ever. 
Um, I thought that John making the decision that his five children were the most important people in his life was a very courageous one to make, whereas his father would eat, breathe, live and die Cosa Nostra. And um, uh, so in part, it was just being around him and seeing him and seeing the kind of man he was, seeing the kind of father he was. I remember going into his second trial. Now, this is a guy that's potentially facing 25 years to life in prison. He was very concerned about a son of his who happened to be named Frank. He was named for his dead brother, uh, Frankie Gotti. And um, he said to me, you know, I really love what you do on the radio. I love listening to you with Curtis and Ron all the time. I'm listening mostly for you and Ron, not so much for Curtis. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of concerned with, with my son. He's having a difficult time in, um, in high school now. I think he might have ADHD or something like that. I, I really, I, I'm just hoping that I can stay out of prison long enough to see him get through high school, and that's why I'm hoping this, uh, you know, I, I can do well in this trial and not get convicted in this trial. He said, I'd love for you to meet uh, my son one day. So really, it's seeing the kind of person that he was, seeing the kind of uh, family member he was, and seeing the kind of how a human being can change. Now, the other thing I saw in those trials is I was absolutely amazed that even though the federal government knew and acknowledged that John Gotti Jr. was no longer in organized crime, they were still willing to not only spend tens of millions of taxpayer dollars on four separate trials to try to convict him, even though they couldn't get a guilty verdict in one of these trials. They just kept going after him and going after him uh, like, uh, like Ahab would go after Moby Dick, a real vendetta. But it was also amazing to me that the government would let out of prison all of these killers who were genuine uh, threats to the public at large just because they were willing to testify against John Gotti Jr., people like uh, John Ayla. And, by the way, let them keep their money. They not only let them out of prison, they let them keep all the, a lifetime of ill-gotten gains all to get John Gotti Jr., who had never been accused of or convicted of killing anyone. So to me, uh, it reflected a lack of priorities on the part of the Justice Department. And I think, uh, I, I think a lot of Trump supporters are starting to see that play out on a, on a broader scale. But it's a good question, Ed. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Igor is in Fairfield, Connecticut. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Uh, it's in New Jersey, by the way, but it doesn't matter much. Oh, sorry about that. That's uh, my error. I have a suggestion before I ask you your question. You know, I'd like to hear hear you interview Bill Boggs, if you know who that was. Sure, I know Bill Boggs. Yes, I, I've been working on that, actually, and I will uh, reach out to him again. Oh, that's outstanding. All right. So here's the question, Frank. You know, you do four hours on the radio, probably three-plus hours of, of real programming. It's all so original. You come up with new ideas of things to talk about. Sometimes it, you know, people react. Sometimes it's crickets. But you develop so much material for that for that three plus hours of actual programming. I was wondering how much of your day goes into thinking about what you're going to talk about on your show, and your production staff. How much do they contribute in coming up with some of those ideas? Uh, well, the first question is the whole day goes into uh, into the thinking about the show. Uh, the entirety of the day goes into thinking about the show. When I, um, when, when I watch a television program, I watch it with the expectation and the anticipation that I'm going to talk about it on the air. The same if I read uh, a book or go through a newspaper. The same if I'm talking with a friend or a family member. I'm always looking for a moment of that conversation that will result in a, a story that I can share 
on the radio. Um, and as far as the uh, the staff, they do a, a really a substantial amount of work. Um, in terms of all the audio that we acquire on the show, uh, Alex Barnard does a lot of that stuff that um, is very tedious that no one wants to do, like print out articles. Kenneth and Alex Barnard will uh, will end up doing that. Uh, Matt Blaze is very good in terms of uh, accumulating a lot of the music that we play. There's also a lot of legwork that goes into tracking down uh, certain, you know, doing certain things, like uh, just is having a guest on the radio you might not think that that's complicated, but sometimes that can mean making sure that you have the right phone number, that you do a test on however you're going to connect with them, that uh, you uh, get them to fill out the proper guest release form, that you give the security guard their name so they don't get stopped when they come into the building. So um, everybody, myself included, but everybody does a, a great job, I think, and we are, we're all working hard. 800-848-9222, one open line. Uh, Sean is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sean. Good morning. First of all, I'd like to say quick, you know who you remind me of? Johnny Carson. Oh, thanks. I'll, I'll take Johnny, that any day of the week. Johnny Carson would have done great on the radio. He, I mean, he went to television you know, early in the late 50s. But you remind them with your style, the way you, you, you just get right to the point when you're speaking. It's amazing. I, I love listening to you and you and uh, Rita and Dominic. Anyway, my question Thank is, you. my question, very important. I want America to listen up. If you notice, Democrats in the White House, every time, most of the time, we go to war when you have it there. And I'll give you, and I'll give you the facts. Not in my opinion. It's facts. Go back to World War I. Wilson was a Democrat. And then World War I we had. It was disgusting. World War II, again, for FDR, obviously, you know he was a Democrat. Now, another attack. With Putin, this maniac that he is, it's disgusting. 2022, we had the pandemic, and this fool attacks innocent people. It's disgusting. And people forget the Democrats uh, stop voting for them Um, because they get us into war. So what was your question, Sean? My question is people have too short memories to stop voting for Democrats. Look where we're at now. We're on the verge of getting attacked by a nuclear bomb. It's not fake. It's real. Uh, Sean, I'm not sure that's a question, but uh, I appreciate the thought. Look, uh, the facts that you stated were correct, but they were very carefully curated. I think what you said ignores the war in Iraq that took place under George W. Bush. It also ignores the the Persian Gulf War, which took place under George H.W. Bush. It uh, also ignores uh, the uh, the war in um, Grenada, if you even consider that a war uh, that took place with uh, Ronald Reagan. So, look, um, I uh, I'm not I don't want to let anybody off the hook. But unfortunately, when it comes to foreign policy, I think what we've seen is the it's the what Eisenhower warned us about. The military industrial complex seems to have a great deal of power and authority and influence in terms of dictating world policy and foreign policy and military policy, irrespective of what party's in the White House. I mean, that's one of the things that's so frustrating to see. And there's a wonderful book. And see, the phrase deep state has become so politicized. I don't even like to use it anymore because it's now become something that's embraced by conservatives and dismissed by progressives. But there's a wonderful book by a guy named Mike Lofgren, 
who it's called the deep state. And Lofgren is not a Trump guy. But Lofgren uh, was sort of, a, I guess, a moderate Republican for many years. I, I would characterize him as a never-Trump Republican. In this book, he does an incredible job explaining how these unelected forces control policy. And he doesn't come at it from a left-wing perspective or a right-wing perspective. It's just factual, and it's a f- question of following the money and following the policy. So that's one of the things that's very frustrating to me. I do recommend that book, uh, D- The Deep State, Mike Lofgren. One open line if you want to jump on board. All right. Um, this person, I'm, I said I'd get to a few email questions. Mr. Gurka writes, question, why not best of Frank Morano? Frank, don't WABC hosts themselves have any say as to who should sub for them while they're on leave? A couple of months ago when you were going away, we contacted the radio station urging them that they play Best of Frank Morano while you're away instead of Curtis Lewa, who disseminates mostly live shtick with little or no substance, even often having no call screener and taking no calls from listeners. George. Um, well, no. The answer is no. We, we, we don't uh, have any say in terms of uh, who subs for us. When We have control over what happens when we're here. And uh, when we're not here, that is a decision made by management. And uh, that's the way it is. You know, you don't get to control what happens when you're not here. You want to say in what goes on? I guess you should show up, right? All right, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your questions in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight Straight Ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, just join our Facebook group. Um, just uh, search on Facebook, Morano Radio, Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio, Fans and Haters. And um, we are in the midst of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. All right, this is uh, a question from one of our listeners in France. We do have listeners in France. You know why? Because I say France. Unlike a lot of these other American radio personalities who say France, France. Nobody in France would ever listen to somebody that says France. So that's why we have so many French listeners. You're welcome to the Franks. Um, Naomi writes, I'm sorry I can't call from France. But I would like to ask you, did you have a guest who really intimidated you? I'm thinking of his notoriety as an actor, writer, etc. And I have another question, too. Do you have a person you really want to invite but who you can't even after several tries because he doesn't want to come on the show for reasons of his own? Both good questions. I don't think I've ever really been intimidated by a guest. Uh, I have been nervous a couple of times 
uh, because of, uh, you know, whoever I was I was interviewing was uh, somebody that I really admired and looked up to uh, or just because they were such a big star or um, powerful, whatever the case may be. The um, the examples that most immediately come to mind, I'm sure there are many instances where I've been nervous, but I interviewed Shatner, uh, who is my favorite celebrity ever. I interviewed him about uh, seven or eight years ago. I was a little nervous then. And especially, you know what I was nervous about? It was not just interviewing Shatner, but his folks were so adamant that I only had 10 minutes. And you hear this show, right? It takes me 10 minutes to say my own name. So it's the combination of the time limitation and the and the the grandeur of the person I was talking to. Um, and, you know, one time, it's <laughs> very funny. I was uh, working as a producer, and I was helping Rabbi Joe Potasnik, who uh, is the co-host of The Rev and the Rabbi, Sunday mornings on WABC in New York. He is the longest-running host on WABC, I believe. He's been there since it was a music station, I think. I could be corrected. I stand to be corrected. But he's been there a long time. And I was uh, helping him produce something, and he had a pre-tape with Jimmy Carter, right, the former president, Jimmy Carter. And not while he was president. This is about uh, 06, um, 2006 or so. And Rabbi Joe was late. I guess he got stuck in traffic or something. He was late. So um, Jimmy Carter called in at the prescribed time that he had to call. And again, Jimmy Carter was another one of these guys. He had a very strict time schedule, so you only have him for the 12 minutes that you have him. So all of a sudden, Rabbi Joe's not there when it comes time to do this Jimmy Carter interview, which was going to be pre-taped. And so ultimately I had to interview Jimmy Carter, even though I was completely unprepared to talk about whatever charitable effort or whatever initiative it was that, uh, that Jimmy Carter was going on with Rabbi Joe to talk about. So that was a little, that was a little intimidating. Um, but uh, so that, that's one, that's one example and then uh, I think – I don't remember what happened. I think what happened was we then recorded Rabbi Joe asking the same questions that I had asked, and we edited it to make it out like he was doing the interview uh, the whole time. In terms of someone that we'd – that I'd really wanted to have on but that uh, we haven't been able to get, there's a lot of folks. Um, I cannot understand for the life of me w- – there are two people that I have praised publicly again and again. And I cannot understand why neither of them have ever come on this show. One is Tulsi Gabbard, and one is Andrew Yang. I can't think of another person that has on the radio um, that would be a better interview, that they would more enjoy. And yet uh, we have not had any luck with either of them. But there are a number of other folks as well. Uh, so it, um, you know, th- those are the, that is what immediately comes to mind. Those two. 800-848-9222. Esther is in Forest Hills. Hello, Esther. Yes. Thank you very much. Sure. Love your show. Thank you. Enjoyed the interview with Whitley Strieber. That was fascinating. Oh, thank you. Comes back. The question I have for you, just to lighten things up a little bit, is we'd love to know how you met your beautiful wife. Oh, uh, well, she I met her. She was a report. She is still a journalist, but she was a reporter for uh, the newspaper, the local newspaper, the Staten Island Advance. And um I uh, had a relationship with her predecessor, the person that was in that job previously, and um, I happened to be uh, – I was, I was serving grand jury duty, 
and I happened to be outside where their office was, and a guy that she was sharing an office with who was sort of getting ready to pass the baton to her, a great columnist uh, by the name of uh, Tom Robleski, he sees that I'm standing outside his window. He knocks you know, on the window and motions for me to come in. He says, oh, this is Rachel. She's going to be taking over for me uh, next month. And uh, you know, she says, oh, this is Frank. So then I, I would constantly send her <clears throat> emails to try to – um, get her to write about what I was doing or to be a source in stories that she was already doing. And then I met her again a couple of months after that initial meeting, which was brief, and she did not remember who I was. So she said, Aww. nice to meet you. And I uh, explained to her that we'd already met. And then um, nice. and then I uh, would keep sending her emails and, and sent her stuff to use for articles, which she would never use. And then she said, well, do you, why don't we get coffee and we could talk about, I forget what she said, some of the concerns that you have about some of the coverage. And uh, we got along well. She, we, you know, we became friends first and we stayed in touch. And then uh, ultimately, uh, ultimately there was some chemistry between us and, and things materialized from there. Sleepless in Staten Island. Exactly. I like it, Esther. I like it. That's wonderful. God bless you. All the best. Feel better. Thanks, Esther. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Good morning, Frank. Morning. I have two really quick questions, and I understand if you don't want to answer the second one. The first one is, what is the most embarrassing thing that's either happened to you or you've done? And the second one is, what is your IQ? Uh, I don't know what my IQ is. Uh, the, the Around 2003, there was a television special on IQ, and I, um, I, uh, I think I was, I was slightly above average. I did the at-home test. I'm not sure that that's a proper IQ test, but I was, I was slightly above average. Uh, I would love to tell you I have an IQ of 130. It was whatever slightly above average is at the time. The most embarrassing moment, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that. Um, I'm sure it involves saying something stupid. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Probably drunkenly saying something stupid. Um, but I'm trying to think of a specific. I, I, there are many. There are many embarrass- times that I've been embarrassed. I'm trying to think of a specific one that um, that would fit the bill well, as my most embarrassing. I, I'd have to give that why some you thought. Think about it and then answer it later. I will. I will give that some thought. I may have to come back. On Monday on that one. Um, although, do I really want to relive it if it was that embarrassing? Maybe I don't. I don't know. 800-848-922-123. Open lines if you want to uh, comment on anything we're doing. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, Frank. I've got a question about talk radio. Why do you think there is a lack of progressive or liberal radio stations and um, people who host programs in the current media today. So I've I've gotten this question a bunch and I've also posed it to more to people that are more um seasoned than I am in terms of studying the history of talk radio and basically uh and I asked this to um Alex Bennett recently I asked it to John Manelli recently um I've asked it to an, uh, the person that wrote the book on uh, Brian Rosenwald um who is really quite a scholar on talk radio I think it comes down to a few factors. One, I think it's mimicry. Uh, because prior to Rush Limbaugh going into national uh, national syndication, 
Talk radio was conservative, but it wasn't all conservative all the time. And Rush, you may not agree, but in my opinion, Rush was a great entertainer. And whether you agree or not, he certainly got great ratings. And uh, there were a lot of uh, radio stations that wanted to hold on to that Rush uh, audience. So what they would do is basically put on a Rush clone for the three hours after Rush was on and for the two hours before. And they said, all right, we want to build stationality. We don't want to... If we were a country station, we wouldn't have somebody play rock and roll music and heavy metal for four hours and then go back to country. So we feel like uh, they want to hear conservative views all the time. And I think it completely misunderstood why Rush was so successful, which is not that he was conservative. It's that he was an entertainer and he was entertaining. I think that's one factor, the mimicry and misunderstanding of why Rush was such a success. I think another factor is economic, right? If you listen to what a lot of conservatives are pre- are saying about policy, especially economic policy, that's a message that big corporations that own radio stations like and want reinforced. Uh, there are not a lot of conservative uh, radio talk show hosts that come out and say corporations should be paying higher taxes and things like that. So I think corporate America, both in terms of the people that own these stations and the advertisers that support these stations, they like that message. And then lastly, um, maybe not lastly, we could go on and do just five hours on this, but I think another factor is that when conservative talk radio was ascendant, there was no other place to get conservative, except maybe National Review, there was not a lot of other places, at least in terms of broadcast media, that you could get a right-of-center take on the news of the day. There was no Fox News Channel. There was no Newsmax. There was no anything. And the perception among right-leaning voters was that liberals dominated the broadcast news. They dominated the major newspapers. They dominated uh, all the news outlets. And I think the conservatives sort of flocked to talk radio like an oasis in the desert because it was the only place that they could get something that wasn't just all liberal all the time. So I think those are some of the factors. I think there are others, but um, re- but I think those are some. Read Brian Ro- Rosenwald's book, Talk Radio's America. Billy's in Queens. Hello, Billy. Hey, Frank, I heard they put Noam Layden back to WABC. I met him years ago. You're kidding. Okay. What was that like? Uh, I thought so. You know, that's when he was uh, with Geraldo, when him and Geraldo were doing the show for a while. On WABC in the morning. Yes, yes, um, yes. And they were at, they were doing something. Heck, I, don't know. I, I ride my bicycle in the city. I stopped in the Sheridan over there, and he was he and Geraldo was doing something. No one was like a sidekick back then. Yeah. So, like, what was your question, me. Billy? Um, when did they bring Mark Simone back to WABC? You know, again, I feel like I get this question every week too. How would I know? I have no idea. I just got finished saying that they don't consult me. With making programming decisions or management decisions, I have no idea. Uh, honestly, I would tell you if I did, but I don't. Uh, Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Good morning, Frank. Uh, let me preference this, Frank. Uh, you know, uh, we know that you don't mind Curtis bashing you uh, constantly on the show because of your friendship. You've said that many times. However, he does bash your staff. Alex, Matt, calls them uh, brown noses and other names. And, I mean, these are two highly talented people who help make your show number one, Frank. Uh, I, would I think you may have them that, confused with someone else. Well, no, Frank. Uh, yeah, see, uh, maybe you should be on the Curtis show with him. Uh, <laughs> but, 
they're highly talented and, 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 and they're wonderful people. Just speaking to one on the phone, they're wonderful people. Have you ever really said to Curtis, you know, why don't you knock it off uh, fooling around with my staff and calling them names and just stick to me? Um, well, no, I've never said that. Um, one, I don't think I, – I know Matt Blaze is not bothered by that. Uh, I don't think Kenneth is bothered by that. The only one that I could see potentially being bothered by that is Alex Barnard, and I don't even think he's bothered by it. So it's the same thing. Yes, I that think, is correct. I think if uh, if they were bothered by it – I would be happy to speak with Curtis. You know, there have been other people that have worked on this show that were much more emotionally uh, fragile and much more sensitive, and Curtis didn't bash them. And that's because Curtis knows who he can have fun with. You want to add something, uh, Alex? I'm actually not bothered by it at all. It's funny, though. um, My grandmother, who is a devoted listener to WABC, your show, um, Great woman. Yes, yes, and it was her birthday actually a couple of days ago. Oh, so you should have said something. We I know I should have something. But, um, she always I says to me, his "Grandmother's birthday." No, I didn't. I said I called her. Should have said something. She says she says all the time. You know, I wish Curtis wouldn't call you a brown <laughs> noser, and I just, I just say to her, "It's it's just the you know." It's just yeah. how it is. No, I, I have no problem with it. It's funny. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's also funny because Alex is not a brown noser. I actually wish he was a little bit more of a brown noser. Yeah, keep um, dreaming, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, uh, I listen to, I, you know, Sid doesn't even let his staff look him in the eye. And sure enough, you know, I ask for an audio cut four days in advance, and it's like, forget about it. It's difficult to... Hey, I got got you that one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, There you have it, Neil. If if, if they're not bothered by it, you shouldn't be bothered by it either. Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Frank, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. The Mm. good news is you're going to have a prison mate. It could be a male, it could be female, it can't be family. Who is the one person in the world you are going to choose to spend the rest of your life in a prison cell with? So I can't pick my my wife then, you're saying? No, absolutely not. No family. Um, oh, no family. Uh, that's good. See, I'm, I'm trying to think creatively here because yes. I, I'd want somebody – I'd want somebody that um, – you know, I don't know what kind of prison I'm in, but I'm assuming it's. Although if I'm in there for life, maybe it's a pretty tough prison. It's not a not a minimum security prison. I was going to say, you yeah. know, I'd want somebody that, uh, that that's kind of a tough guy that I could get on my good side, and that you know the rest of the prisoners would defer to and and not really mess with me. Um, but you also want to be intellectual, right? Exactly. Truly. I'm trying to balance this. It's such a good question. I think I might have to pick. It's a good question. And I've gotten versions of this question before, but in a prison-like environment, huh? Hey, Stuna. I might pick. I might pick Joe Borelli because Joe Borelli is not only a very good conversationalist, but um, he's a very good ping pong player, and and so I think we could have a lot of fun. Or I might pick my friend Vinny Ignizio. Uh, I I would pick probably one of the two. I have a lot of close friends, and I would um, you know I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm picking somebody, but uh, those two guys are um, you know Arthur Idala I think is a candidate for that as well. But and he also would be a very good prison lawyer. I think he might know the legal system. All right, gun to my head, I'm picking my friend Vinny Ignizio uh, because 
He's someone uh, whose company I have never tired of and uh, who I've just never seemed to run out of conversation topics to uh, to talk about with. 800-848-9222 if you want to get in a call. One, two, three, four open lines. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, Hi. Why is it that the national insert, the national news on the hour, is always more pro-Biden? Do we? I, I don't know what kind of national news we have. We it's isn't it all? Matt Matt Blaze, help me out here. Is it? Any, what is the national? No, there news? is no national. There is no national, national news right. that's from a news well, service or anything like yeah. that. No. Well, wh- whoever it varies who gives it, um, but it's usually. And I'm I'm trying to say more pro Biden because I know you know. You already discussed it. I, I'm kind of rephrasing what that gentleman was yeah, trying again, to say. Yeah, again, if you give me a specific more... example, I'm happy to explain to you how that newscast came to be. Um, but, again, I don't think the problem on this radio station is too many pro-Biden stories. I, I, I really don't. Matt Blaze, give me a winner. Naomi in France. Naomi in France. Uh, email me. We'll get you a hat. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There's been a lot of attention paid to these migrants, right? These uh, asylum seekers that are fleeing places like um, Venezuela uh, because of all the oppression there and coming to the United States in the hope of a better life, right? Um, In fact, the White House press spokesperson she um, made a remark about um, all these people that are fleeing from these oppressed places, namely Venezuela, and coming here. This is what she said. These people are, are fleeing uh, communism, as we have said, uh, as you heard DHS say as well. Falling authoritarian regimes in Venezuela, as Nicaragua, and Cuba are causing a new migration uh, challenge across the Western Hemisphere. Let's remember, these folks are fleeing communism. When you think about Venezuela, what's going on in Venezuela, when you think about what's going on in Nicaragua, when you think about what's going on in Cuba, they are fleeing political persecution only to be used as a political pawn by the Florida governor. They are using people who are leaving a communist countries as political stunt. So the way that we see it is alerting Fox News uh, and not city or state officials about a plan to abandon children fleeing communism on the side of the street is not burden sharing. That is not the definition that we see of burden sharing. It is a cruel, premeditated political stunt. That is not what they're, that is what they are doing. Uh, they have used, they have used the lives of people who are fleeing persecution from communist countries, using them as a political stunt. I had no idea that uh, Karine St. Pierre was so opposed to communism 
all of a sudden. But okay. Um, by the way, I don't know if you. I've never been to Venezuela, but I've heard from a number of people who've ha- who have, and they've been to some of the wealthy neighborhoods in Caracas. And I would venture to guess that a lot of these people living in the wealthy neighborhoods in Caracas would reject the notion that their government is communist. They've been targeted, Venezuela, let's talk, Venezuela has been targeted for regime change, like the others, for, I, I think we could say, good reasons on the part of the United States. But we, whether Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua are communist or not, Cuba certainly is, but whether they're communist or not, I think the one thing that we can agree upon especially if we're talking about the countries she mentioned specifically there, Nicaragua and Venezuela, the one thing that we can agree on is that things are bad there. If you had your choice of countries to live in, to work in, to hang out in, I don't know that anybody's putting these days Venezuela, which was once the wealthiest country in that um, in, in Central America. I don't know that anybody is putting Venezuela high up on their list. And... It's a terrible place. There's poverty. There's hyperinflation. There's violence. And all of there's corruption. And all of those four things that I just mentioned sort of feed into one another. The poverty leads to the violence. The violence leads to the corruption. And it's basically a thugocracy. The U.S. policy, the official policy of our country, is to try to cripple Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua with sanctions. Now, we are successful in that. We And now Russia as well. We are achieving the desired result and crippling these countries with sanctions. Um, but as I've said, whenever sanctions are brought up, If you look at the entire history of sanctions, almost never have they been successful in getting a country to change its behavior. Almost never. Usually what happens is what's happening. Usually what happens when the United States um, issues sanctions on a country, the dictator of that country isn't hurt. The people are hurt. It doesn't lead to regime change. What it leads to is the dictator, the autocrat, being able to point his finger at the or her finger at the big bad United States and say, you see, you know why you're starving? You know why your neighborhood is falling apart? You know why you we don't have money for schools or to pave roads? Because of the United States. And I think these sanctions only foment more anger at the U.S. And so when... When the United States achieves the desired result and people flee these dire conditions, the U.S. government turns around, as you just heard there from uh, Miss uh, St. Pierre, and blames communism. Now, it works because, as Lionel used to call it, the Ted Baxter sock puppet news media in this country only mentions sanctions in passing, if at all. But if you look at what's causing the migrant crisis 
and what's causing the crisis in Venezuela, it's American sanctions. You want to know who's to blame for Venezuela becoming the dump that it is today? We deserve a part of that blame. Since 2017, the U.S. government has imposed crushing, crushing economic and trade sanctions on Venezuela, including an oil embargo, a blanket ban on all dealings with Caracas, secondary sanctions, freezing or seizing a number of Venezuelan assets abroad. As a result, the country's revenues from oil exports were significantly reduced, and that severely exacerbated an economic crisis that was already there. So what's happening in Venezuela now because of U.S. sanctions? Well, the U.N. special rapporteur on this, Elena Dewan, she warned that U.S. sanctions continue violating the Venezuelan people's right to health. In a statement released on Monday, Duan explained that sanctions have blocked the Caribbean country from importing spare parts to repair electron microscopes, which is vital for detecting diseases, vital for finding treatments, and vital for advanced medical research. Because the electron microscopes were made by a unit of the U.S. company Thermo Fisher Scientific, but the firm has been unable to get export licenses from Washington because of these sanctions. Um, This is crazy. We are serving not to change the government there or in any of these countries. We're serving to make people's lives miserable. And what that's leading to in some respects is terrorism. What that's leading to in other respects is this migrant crisis. You want to do something about the thousands of people that are trying to get into this country seeking asylum every day and every week? You got to do something about why Venezuela is such a crummy country to begin with. And a big part of that is these crippling economic sanctions that the United States has levied at them. Clearly, they haven't worked. We've seen what sanctions have done in Cuba for the last 60 years. Are they any closer to not being communist now than they were in 1962? I don't think so. I don't think so. What good are these sanctions doing except creating more enemies of the United States and creating more starving children and more Venezuelans that can't get decent medical care? What are they doing? What possible purpose are they serving? Now, I'm not sitting here and saying I have all the answers. I don't. I don't pretend to be an expert in economics. I don't pretend to be an expert in international policy. I don't pretend to be an expert in uh in the politics of other countries. I am an expert in none of those things, admittedly so. But I am interested in all of those things. And whenever the United States, uh, whoever, it doesn't matter who the president is, it doesn't matter who is in the leadership of Congress, they run out there whenever a country does something bad and they say, oh, sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. They run out there and they expect their plaudits from the public and they run on this. Wow, we've instituted tough sanctions. Am I the only one that actually looks and asks the question, well, okay, you got these sanctions in place now. 
What are these sanctions actually doing? Have they helped bring about regime change in Cuba? No. Have they helped bring about regime change in Nicaragua? No. Have they helped bring about regime change in Venezuela? No. Have they helped bring about an end to this Russia-Ukraine war? No. So why do we keep thinking this is a playbook that is going to work? I I would – and you remember – Look, if you want to comment on this, and you're welcome to disagree with me. I'm sure many of you do. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you, if you look at the stated reasons that Osama bin Laden gave for attacking the United States on September 11th, he gave many, right? Um, American, Americans being in the Holy Land and a bunch of other things. But one of the things that he said was all of the Muslim children that were being starved because of the sanctions that we had implemented on Iraq. So, I mean, you think about it, our sanctions in Iraq did not help bring about a change in government. They helped bring about a terrorist attack. So why do we keep doing this? I would love to see uh, Donald Trump or any presidential candidate, quite frankly, come out and say the way to help end this migrant crisis is not only better border security, not only a better process for dealing with the asylum seekers, but it's to um, end these crippling economic sanctions on Venezuela. What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Two two. Uh, let me say hello to Roger in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi. Uh, we're on this subject. Um, all right. Regarding this, uh, the reason I, I kind of stayed on. Uh, actually, first of all, I'll just start by saying that you know you, you have me thinking. I mean, you know, these are good questions, and they really make me think. Uh, well, good. I'm glad we know, can these, make you think. Right? I mean, really, <clears throat> it does. So uh, anyway. I guess so. The only thing I'm just going to stick with then, I don't know if it answers your question, but uh, right now going on in Washington, D.C. is um, a week of what they call Radio Row, and the Federation for American Immigration Reform is is hosting this. And so that's the great big topic. And I was listening to somebody this morning who was born and raised down near a border town, uh, Hispanic um, descent, and uh, and he's a border well, and he and he's worked down there. Basically, his whole life is right down there on the border, and now he's the vice president of the border patrol something or other organization. Okay, and he uh, regarding GPR's statement, he declared that the um, when these folks finally meet their court date which right now is 85 months in advance. Uh, usually it's, the, the figure is 7% of them are actually fleeing uh, oppression, 7%. The rest are just coming up for a better life, just for the record. Um, so it's not so much like they're being, you know, so terribly oppressed as, as uh, Ms. Jean-Pierre was, was, um, was declaring there and all that regarding uh, everything you're saying about the sanctions all it's, it, this is very interesting to listen to you know i i, I listen to you when when you're discussing um 
uh, the war in Ukraine and everything in Russia, and that really has made me think. I actually recorded those on my phone. Oh, I wow. still listen to them every so often. Oh, wow. So anyway, so I just wanted to make that point that, that the, apparently the official number is 7% are actually fleeing some type of real oppression, and, and the court dates for these people now are 85 months in advance. I, I'm not surprised to see that, Roger. Um, look, I, I think uh, – thank you very much for the call and for your nice uh, nice words there. I think that um, not having a streamlined process for dealing with these asylum seekers is a big part of the problem as well. Having an insecure border is another part of the problem. I think uh, we have an immigration policy in this country which is just a mess. From top to bottom, it's a mess. It's uh, It's inconsistent. It's unfair. It's uh, it's a mess. So, uh, but I, I would love to fix it. But I'd also love to have a situation where people aren't fleeing all these countries to begin with. In 1998, 1999, Hugo Chavez was um, the president of uh, Venezuela. And he was just as much of a communist as Corinne St-Pierre says that, um, well, I guess 2002 we started, right? But go go back to 2002, 2003, 2004. He was just as much of a communist as Maduro is. So we didn't have all these people fleeing Venezuela at the time then, now, then, that we do now. Why? What's different? Weren't they interested in fleeing communism in 2005? In 2006, um, I think the the answer is that because things weren't weren't as bad. Corinne Jean Pierre or Corinne Jean Pierre, I believe, is the way way it's pronounced. I said Saint Pierre. Sorry about that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 one two three four five six open lines. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Do you realize that? The four things that you mentioned in those countries, the Democrats are doing in the United States now. Well, I mean, I think that uh, even the United States on its worst day is still a lot better than Venezuela is. You'd agree with that, Robert, right? It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, Look, I, I don't think um, crime is moving in the right direction. Right. I mean, we've seen homicides go down, but street crime go up. That's certainly not going in the right direction. Um, but, uh, you know, I would rather be in the United States. I don't care who's the president. I don't care who's controlling Congress. I don't care who the mayor is or the governor is. I'd rather be in the United States any day of the week than Venezuela. Any day of the week. Maria is in Brooklyn. Hello, Maria. Hi, Frank. Hi. Why isn't anyone the, – the latest playbook for the Democrats is that uh, the Republicans are using these migrants for political purposes. Really? The Democrats who have been using the illegal immigration into this country for the last 25 years, knowing that their, their political game and hope is that those same immigrants in 20. 30 years later, will vote for the Democratic Party. Really? Why isn't anybody, uh, you know, uh, pulling them on their own bluff? I'm not sure I follow. I'm not sure I follow, Maria. Do do that for me again. I'm not following what you're saying. Okay. 
uh, everybody's saying that uh, the Republicans are using these migrants, moving them all around the country for political purposes. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what the Democrats have been doing with illegal immigration for the last 25 years? Well, I mean, and yes thanks. and no, right? I mean, we see uh, uh, the Hispanic vote going increasingly Republican, right? So uh, if that's the strategy, it certainly doesn't seem to be working. They say one of the factors that was largely responsible for um, Trump winning Florida in 2020 was his support among Hispanics. So I don't think if it's a concerted strategy on the part of the Democrats, it seems to be failing. So it turns out that uh, no matter how your parents got here or your grandparents, if you're in this country, you like safe streets too. So 800-848-9222. We'll talk space straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Space news that we're seeing. Saudi Arabia aims to launch its first woman to space as soon as 2023. You know what? I I hate to say this, but you know the first thing I thought of when I saw that headline? It's that Saudis are so desperate to get rid of women that they'll do whatever it takes to get rid of them, including sending them to space. Now, it's not actually true. But the nation of Saudi Arabia has started its own astronaut program, and it's working with Axiom Space on a flight that could lift off next year. So a Saudi Arabian woman will reach space for the first time next year, if all goes according to plan. The nation announced yesterday that it has started an astronaut program And it intends to send two of its citizens to space, at least one of them, a woman, as early as next year. That mission will be organized by a company based in Texas. And that's where Axiom Space is based. This is part of the statement from Axiom Space. Space belongs to all of humanity, which is one of the reasons that Axiom Space is pleased to welcome our new partnership with the Saudi Space Commission to train and fly Saudi astronauts. I am all for this. 
You know me. If you've listened to this program, I'm very critical of the Saudi government, not only how they treat their own people, how they treat other Middle Eastern countries, but their um, lackadaisical relationship with terrorism. I think we want as many countries as possible, for the reasons Axiom stated, pursuing a vigorous space program. Space is the future. Space is the future of human civilization. In fact, I think it could be argued that if you look at our increasing reliance on satellite technology, everything from navigation to using your mobile phone to watching television, you could argue that space is the present of um, human civilization. And a Saudi man has already made it to orbit. The Prince Sultan bin Salman al Saud flew on the STS-51G mission of the space shuttle Discovery about uh, 40 years ago. Women have traditionally had fewer rights in Saudi Arabia than they enjoy in this country and just about every other country. Saudi women were forbidden to drive cars until 2018. So uh, Axiom, which is the company they're partnering with, has already flown one private crewed mission to the International Space Station. That flight, called AX-1, carried three paying customers and an Axiom employee to and from the orbiting lab aboard a SpaceX Dragon capsule. So this is really neat. I think uh, I'm all for this. So I wish them the best of luck. You know, who else is going to space? And I don't think they're going for discovery's sake. China. China has already been going to space. But now China and the United Arab Emirates have agreed on a joint lunar rover mission. China's Change 7 mission, which is scheduled for 2026, plans to deliver the UAE's Rashid 2 rover to the surface of the moon's southern polar region. The mission hopes to explore the bottoms of craters for possible reserves of ice, a vital resource for any human habitation on the moon. Um, The unique Chinese mission to the moon's southern polar region will deliver a hopping device that can move in and out of a crater's permanently shadowed area. I think what this is about is China's thirst for minerals. I think um, China's discovery of a lunar mineral, which they're saying could add to a fuller view of the moon, it's... It's all about wanting to do things like um, build a better electric car battery or all sorts of other technology that we might not even be able to fathom yet, but which China will have no problem manufacturing and selling to the rest of the world. See, what's already happened is scientists found a single crystal of a new phosphate mineral while analyzing uh, certain lunar particles which were collected from the moon two years ago by one of these similar Chinese missions. And they just announced their discovery of this new lunar mineral. I guarantee you the reason China is investing so much in the space program is because they have a thirst for these minerals and they want to use it for every possible piece of technology they can. And uh, that's my take. That's my take. Who knows? But there's actually a commission on new minerals, nomenclature and classification. That's international. That's not Chinese. But they review the introduction of minerals and their naming. And they confirmed this new mineral. I think it's called Change Site, 
they confirmed it as a new mineral, according to the China National Space Administration. So um, I think this is, you know, look, I get why China is going, but uh, I understand why all these countries are wanting to make these uh, space missions. If you look at the six Apollo missions conducted between 1969 and 1972, because we have not been, the United States hasn't been to the moon since 1972, NASA amassed 2,200 samples of lunar rocks, core samples, pebbles, sand, and dust from the surface of the moon. And they continue to study samples from those missions from 50 years ago. And they recently unsealed one of their remaining samples in preparation for the Artemis mission to the moon. But new samples gathered from different locations on the moon are going to expand what we know about what can be found on there. Because on the one hand, I think it's very exciting because a lot of our issues here on Earth might be alleviated with some of the minerals that can be discovered on the moon. On the other hand, I think if everybody realizes that, it could set off a new international space race. But I don't know that that's that bad of a thing. I know, um, you know, the Russia-U.S. space race of the 50s and 60s, it led to tremendous advancements in American technology, in Russian technology. I thought it led to a surge in patriotism, which I thought was very positive. And uh, I would love to see that kind of thing play out again. A new space race technological renaissance. But um, Clive Neal, who's a professor of planetary geology at the University of Notre Dame, uh, said new minerals discovered on the moon are not abundant. The first was armalcolite, which was found during the Apollo 11 mission. Upcoming expeditions, which include efforts by both China and the U.S., are targeting unexplored territory on the moon. So we'll see where it goes. I think it's going to be uh, very interesting. We'll see where it goes. I don't know. 800-848-9222. Coming up in about an hour, we're going to talk travel with my friend Barry Goldsmith. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, coming up in two hours, Debbie Schlussel will be here. She is going to talk movies, but we can talk with her about... um, We'll pick her brain on some legal issues as well because she is an attorney, and uh, she is certainly pretty opinionated when it comes to the world of politics. If you want to comment on uh, anything we're, we're doing on social media, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, or on Twitter at Frank Morano. It's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. All right. Uh, we'll take your calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
you remember this? This is about 20 years old. Uh, this is from the Austin Power film Goldmember, which uh, was, I can't remember if it was the second or third Austin Powers film. You had Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Then I think you had The Spy Who Shagged Me. And then you had uh, Goldmember. Uh, but um, this is Beyonce Knowles. I don't know that she does that much acting these days, but this was um, Beyonce Knowles. And uh, she sang this song I, and sang it quite well. She's really, really terrific. But um, what people may not know about this song is, you know, there's some lyrics that are a little risque. You know, you have, um, I mean, the premise of Goldmember is essentially his genitalia is made of gold, right? So. Um, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, yeah, this was the third one. So I guess it was the third and final Austin Powers movie. But if you listen to the lyrics of the song, <clears throat> Beyonce says, he's got the Midas touch. We all know what that means, right? From King Midas. And uh, she says, he's got the Midas touch, but he touched it too much. Hey, gold member. Here's what you may not know about this. And I just read about this recently uh, on... Uh, in an article in Vulture on the oral history of Beyonce Knowles as Foxy Cleopatra. Beyonce's sister Solange was supposed to be a backup singer in the scene where they sing this song. But Solange, Beyonce's sister, was only 15 years old as at the time. Right? So, um... Solange was young, and, you know, everything in Austin Powers is very suggestive. So, as I understand it, Solange and Beyonce's mother, Tina Knowles, put her foot down. They're choreographing this dance, and um, then they get to that lyric where they uh, they say, he's got the Midas touch, uh, but he touched it too much. And the mother just freaked out and she did not want her 15 year old daughter hearing lyrics like that let alone dancing to suggestive lyrics like that and her mother pulled her out of the movie even though they had the costume already built and it was a mad scramble apparently to find somebody to replace her i mean they did but good for her good for her you don't want your 15 year old corrupt well i mean although on the one hand it's good for her on the other hand what is hearing that lyric going to actually do to a 15-year-old, right? I mean, a lot of 15-year-olds were watching Austin Powers, and they ended up being just fine, but whatever. I guess that's the mark of a, an involved parent, right? I mean, better to err on the side of, um, uh, I, I don't know. I guess there's a debate about that, whether it's better to err on the side of over-permissiveness or under-permissiveness. I don't know. But that's the true story. Everything I just said, absolutely true. I'll tell you what, um, what else is true. The softball game that we had yesterday in Staten Island was quite interesting. So Sid Rosenberg, who hosts the morning show on WABC in New York, he's got this new book out, Citizens United. You might have seen him. He's done a lot of national stuff. He was on Brian Kilmeade's show on Fox News on, um, you know, last weekend. Spectacular. He's been everywhere. And he organized this event for the Spotlight Foundation. And he said, look, you know, I know you like softball. I know you live in Staten Island. We're going to have this charity softball game at the ballpark on Staten Island. 
why don't you come and, you know, we'll let you play first base. And uh, he even said to me yesterday when I left, uh, when I left the radio station, he said, you know, I don't know if a lot of people are going to come, but it's a good it's a good kind of trial. It's a good first one. We'll have some fun. We'll play some ball. We'll see who comes. Whatever we raise, we raise. And it's a good sort of uh, point, a starting point for next year. We know what we have to build on. We know what we have to work on. Fine. And I don't care. I just really want to play softball. So I get there, and I I said to Sid when I left yesterday, what time should I be there? Well, 6.15. Okay. So I get there at 6.15, and I found parking on the street, which I knew was going to be a troublesome sign because that means that nobody's there, right? Because this is a crowded neighborhood. So I go into the ballpark, and there were four people there at the time on the field in terms of players. Um, then there were, at the time, I believe, three fans there, including a fella named Joe or Jeff, who lives on Staten Island, who was wearing his Teachers for Zeldin baseball cap. Nice guy. I met him last time, too. I don't remember if his name is Joe or Jeff. So Joe or Jeff, I apologize for not remembering what your name is. But um, <clears throat> he was there, and everybody's there just kind of warming up. Sid is there, his daughter's there, who's going to London today. Son is there, uh, Sid's wife, Danielle, Chris Mormondo from Gravesend, a couple other people. And then, ultimately, some more and more players start trickling in. John Tobacco from Newsbacks comes. Vito Fasella, the former congressman who's now the Staten Island Borough President, he comes. Not a lot of fans. I, I'll say, in all, there were, um, I don't know, it was not. It was a small crowd, but that's okay. We expected a small crowd. Um but the other problem is, while there were 12, 13, maybe 14 players that ultimately ended up to play on the SID team, nobody showed up to play on the opposing team, right? There was no opposing team that showed up. SID said, I remember when he was planning this game, he said to me, yeah, we're going to play the Cops. And it's not going to be like the last game you played against the Cops where they have their best players that, that are going to be able to knock someone's teeth out. He says, no, these are cops that can, that want to play and want to hang out, but they're not going to knock anyone's teeth out. I said, great, okay, good. I figured maybe it'll be a competitive game. So nobody shows up to play us. So it was just us. Andrew Giuliani came. By the way, you talk about a good ball player. Andrew Giuliani, incredible ball player. Great hitter. Best arm on the field. He was making these throws from third base to first base throwing a perfect strike each time. And then uh, he and Vito Vasella, they both put on a hitting display. I was embarrassed. I was uh, popping up. I had a couple of decent hits, but I was popping up. And basically, we were doing for a while just one long extended batting practice. And then I think Sid felt bad for the fans that came and showed up and the fact that he had them open the ballpark for this. And so he said, "All right, we're going to arrange an intro. We're going to arrange a game with among ourselves." So we we ultimately put together a sort of an exhibition game of a seven on seven game with just our guys, and then we had the team that was batting provide a batter, excuse me, a catcher and a pitcher, and whoever was batting had somebody on the mic, and they were having some fun. Uh, poking fun at whoever was batting, and and it was it was a lot of fun. It was basically just as if we were in a park or a playground, 
hanging out and uh, carrying around, although without the beer. It was, there was no, no beer or anything like that involved. But it was, it was fun. I would have certainly liked to have played a game uh, that was you know, competitive against another team, but it was still fun. I hope the people that came uh, had fun, too, and uh, hopefully they were able to raise some money for uh, the Spotlight Foundation, uh, which, uh, which does some, some great work. So it was, um, it was an interesting experience. You know, on the one hand, obviously I was disappointed not to play the competitive game, but on the other hand, I'm glad to see that I am not the only one that has a difficult time putting together these charity softball games. Because the last two that I've done, it's been a mad dash to get players at the last minute. So I'm glad to see that this is not a problem that's unique to me. And even people that are accomplished in the world of sports, like Sid Rosenberg is, uh, that they have a, a tough time as well. So that was uh, that was that. That was the incredible true story of our softball game. Um, and then I went home, showered, and came here. So that was that. All right. Uh, hey, it is Friday at least on the East Coast. So that means it is pizza day. Um, we ordered pizza today. New place we tried. Matt Blaze, what was your review of today's pizza? Uh, I liked it, actually. You did? It was really very good. It was, I like uh, when it has it was a lot of flavor. Yeah, yeah. And this pizza seemed to have a lot of flavor, like cheese flavor. Sometimes it's bland. This pizza was not bland. Which so type I'm, did you try? I had a plain piece and a mushroom piece. Okay, you had two. And they're both good. Uh, and then we got some wings for Kenneth because of his dairy intolerance. Kenneth, did you try the wings? Yes, they were uh, they were pretty good. Pretty good. You don't sound too enthused. I mean, you know, like I said last time, food's food. I was starving. Yeah. So I, thought, I appreciate it. I only had one slice. I had a mushroom slice. I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay. Um, I, I'm always trying to try as many different uh, pizza places as possible so that we can always try something new. Um, it was not not bad. Look, as they say, the old saying goes, and I wish I was smart enough to have come up with this, they always say pizza's like sex. Even if it's bad, it's still pretty good, right? But um, this was decent. The crust was a little doughy for my taste, but it was not bad. Um, I just had the one mushroom slice. What did annoy me is a couple of things. This particular place... When you order through the Slice app, which I do, they had a $4.95 delivery fee, which I did not like. I prefer the places that have the free delivery. Wow. I also didn't love um, the fact that they came a couple of minutes after the window in which they said it was going to be here. But look, I understand half of Manhattan is closed off because of the U.N. General Assembly and we got to be kind of flexible when it comes to time. and um, But here's what really irked me. I ordered one mushroom and, I think, pepper pie or mushroom and onion pie and one pie that was meant to be half plain and half sausage. But the pie did not come half plain, half sausage. It came plain, but half of it was just weird. It But it didn't have a topping on it. So they messed something up. So I am going to let the... Folks at Slice know about this. Maybe they'll give us a, a voucher for the next time we order. But I thought it was okay. That's the best description that I can that I can give of it. I'm annoyed with myself also because my wife, while I was out there playing softball with Sid Rosenberg, my wife went and picked up a new batch, a fresh new batch of my Aunt Camille's egg salad, and I forgot to bring it in. I had some for dinner tonight, or I guess 
breakfast or lunch. I don't know what meal is what when you work these hours. But I, I had some, and it was great. It was top-notch. My son Carmine, same thing. He had some tonight, and uh, it was great. But I'm, I'll bring it in Monday if there's any left. I still think that's okay. If it was made yesterday, it's still good for Monday. So I'll bring it in. So that'll be that'll be that. Uh, I will tell you, you know, Andrew Giuliani brought his baby, who is five days younger than Carmine, to the softball game, and she is getting big, baby Gray. She's crawling around like crazy, and uh, it was uh, it was fun to play with him. Again, I-, I knew he was a good golfer. I had no idea how good um, that he was at uh, at softball. He wore his shirt from the White House softball team because he worked in the Trump White House. And do you know what the name of the softball team in the Trump White House was? Very clever. I had no idea. Or if I did know, I'd forgotten this. The name of their softball team was the Deplorables. Isn't that clever? I thought that was pretty clever. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Um, Nobody online right now, which is just fine with me because that allows Kenneth to finish the ship in a bottle that he's been working on. And it allows me to talk more, which even with a... With a, a voice that uh, that is afflicted by a cold is just fine with me. I am uh, looking forward to the weekend. We have our Tunnel to Towers race on Walk and Run on Sunday, which basically becomes an all-day affair because of the amount of people involved and traveling there and traveling back, but that's fine. Other than that, those are the only plans that I have this weekend. And all of our weekends have been so busy that we are um, going to try. And yesterday I said to my wife, do we have anything this weekend other than Tunnel to Towers? She said, no. And I said, and I said, I would love to keep it that way. And she said, me too. Because every weekend it just seems like we have five different events to go to on Saturday, five different on Sunday, and then I still have to make time to prepare for the show. That's not the case. So I'm looking forward to a nice relaxing Friday, hopefully. Not even relaxing, a Friday where I can catch up with work. And um, a fr- and a nice relaxing Saturday where I can maybe maybe do some reading, uh, which I have been neglecting. Uh, Matt Blaze, do we have a meeting today? As far as you understand, as far as I know, we do. We do. You have not heard anything new. I haven't heard anything other than there is a meeting today. What about at uh, on 7 the, at, What about on the whole UN General Assembly front? That's not affecting the meeting schedule at all. I do not think so. No. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens, I, I guess. Well, what are you doing this weekend, Matt Place? A little cleanup around the yard now that uh, the pool's closed. Ah, the pool's closed. Plants that I haven't planted. Now's the time you got to seed the lawn for the spring. So I will do that. Probably some food shopping. You know, we really only have the day. It's Saturday. I know. Yeah. Well, you get Friday. You get Friday and Saturday. Well, yeah. But Friday, I mean, yeah, I do stay up on Friday, actually. You don't go to sleep till like, 4 in the afternoon. So I do do things Friday. So just catch up on stuff like that. Well, yeah, well, best of luck Nothing exciting. And, Kenneth, what about you? Are you uh, modeling anywhere for Fashion Week? Nah, I'm probably going to hit the gym, just hang out Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday I'm actually going to the Jets game on behalf oh. of the station. I'm going to get some content for the sports department. Oh, that's nice. When so did this happen? Cool. I didn't know you were doing that. Yeah, I went with uh, with Kevin Perez last Sunday to the Giants game to do it. Yeah, Kevin Perez is one of those guys who I think I see around here all the time, but I'm not really quite sure who he is. So I never, I never say, hey, what's your name? I give him an upward nod. 
So that's the kind of relationship that we have. Uh, I heard already when you were talking with Rita Cosby, Alex Barnard, that um, you you were not doing anything good this weekend. Well, that's not entirely true. Well, that's but, I mean, how you made it sound. No, 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 no. I said I was going to have a quiet weekend with my girlfriend. Which is ironic because as I'm listening to the two of you go on from three rooms away, the <laughs> two of you are speaking so loudly Helen Keller could hear what you're saying. It's funny. You know, Johnny Potenza said last night, he said to me, do you always talk this loudly? (laughs) Yes. That's funny that he said that. And and Johnny's not exactly a soft-spoken guy. Yeah. Well, it made me me immediately go like this. You know, like very, very quietly. That's funny. Yes, that is correct. (laughs) Um, That's much louder than I am right now, you know. Well, now I don't know. Now you're what performing. You, well, what are you? What, what are you doing this weekend, uh, Alex Porner? Uh Well, I intend to see a buddy of mine who is planning on moving to the Netherlands uh, sometime either next month or in November, and then other than that, just uh, hang out with Callie. Yeah, um, yeah. very nice. That's very good. quiet weekend. Well, they they would always starts out that way, but the quiet weekends those are the ones you got to watch out for. They they're the ones that tend to erupt. I know. Yeah, believe me. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Hey, I did want to bring this to your attention. I had this on my list uh, yesterday, but uh, we ran out of time. Uh, you know, so who doesn't like ice cream? Yesterday was National Ice Cream Cone Day, and I missed it. We missed it. We didn't get to do anything. We got to make sure we're up on our national days. We're going to check next hour and see what national days are today, so that you don't miss today. But I was reading Axios Asia. And it's uh, the the reporter that compiles this newsletter writes, last week, I set out to try the wildest ice cream flavor I could find. It really wasn't a contest as red bean and white grape flavors. I think this is in Taiwan, but it might be in mainland China. As red bean and white grape flavors have nothing on. You ready for this? Szechuan peppercorn cheese milk tea a combination of flavors that somehow exist in one ice cream bar let me repeat that szechuan peppercorn cheese milk tea and the reporter writes i have to give the product manufacturers credit for honest advertising the packaging touts the ice cream bar's unique recipe the verdict according to the reporter that tried it it was actually good really I couldn't taste the peppercorn, and mostly what I got were notes of tea and caramel with a hint of cream cheese. I have to tell you, I'm usually turned off by these weird flavors. I actually really want to try this. I'm going to see if I can order this online somewhere. If any of you are traveling in Asia anytime soon and you come across this Sichuan peppercorn cheese milk tea ice cream bar, see if you can find one. Send it to us. I'd love to try this. Would you try that, Matt Blaze? It sounds nasty. No, it doesn't. I think it sounds Peppercorn nice. and ice cream? Yeah. It's, not alone, but it's probably like such a minuscule amount that you don't even taste it. And then, yeah, what do you taste? The caramel. Like, whatever. Well, I want to try this. That's, caramel. you know, I, I want to try it. 800 Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. How are you? A um, couple things. On that Whitley Streamer interview, mm-hmm. you know, this is unbelievable. Uh, 37 years ago, in 1985, I heard about Whitley Strieber from Margot Adler, interviewed her on WBAI. Huh. I, I can't believe it. Like, 37 years later, you do the set. You, you, talk, you talk to him. I was like, and now I'm going to investigate the whole thing. But it, and I was freaked out by his uh, negative experience. Yeah, it was wild. Um, do you recall any other interesting ideas uh, that Margot Adler did on the radio 37 years ago that I can steal now? 
Wow, Frank, I was I was totally her stu- uh, like addicted to her. I, I taped like hundreds of shows. I, I I didn't miss a show for like ten years. It was, it was unbelievable. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll think about that. Let's, yeah, think let, about. Let me, it. Say, let me say. Secondly, Frank, yesterday when those people at that party said they listened to some guy in the morning, you know, Frank Warner in the morning. Do, do you know him? And then you said it was you. That's like the most unbelievable, one of the most unbelievable moments in life you'll ever. To, to experience that is, on, you know what I'm saying? The joy of that is. Well, that, it was very the, nice. I was very the, flattered. The and right, right. and yeah. it was uh, a very nice uh, guy and a very talented guy that said it. And thank you. Um, the fella was, he calls, I, um, he called himself Judah Green. But I think if you were to look him up on the YouTube, he's a great singer. I mean, it's mostly in Hebrew and Yiddish. But I think if you look him up on the YouTube, it's Yehuda Green. Because someone sent me a picture of an artist named Yehuda Green, a singer named Yehuda Green. And by the way, Judah, if you're listening, by the way, you're welcome to call in. I know you said you listen every day, 800-848-9222. But um, he, he sent me a picture of Yehuda Green, and it looked pretty much like the guy that I had seen yesterday. But yeah, he was a super nice guy. The music at this wedding yesterday, five star. Really. Again, I couldn't understand a word of it. But I, a lot of great operas, I can't understand a word of it. And you don't need to understand the words to... Know that it's great music. Denunciations and Barry Goldsmith coming up next hour. Until then, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for tuning in every week around this time. Take note, Baltimoreans. Take note, those of you listening on WCBM 680 AM. This is the time of the week where those that need to be called out get called out. That's right. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciations. I must first begin by denouncing HBO. That's right. I like HBO. But... HBO Max is actually going so far as to remove cigarettes and cigars from classic movie posters on its streaming platform. The posters for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, for instance, and The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, they have gone and removed the cigarette or the cigar displayed in these posters. The 1970 Kirk Douglas adventure, There Was a Crooked Man. The 1995 Hong Kong film, well, the film from Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai, Fallen Angels. This is so stupid. I mean, I'm all for um, not smoking And I understand the fact that when you see fictional characters do certain things, that could lead to people and children picking it up. But these characters, smoking was integral to who they were as a character. And that poster, these posters are movie art. 
they're not only movie art, but they were sort of a um, window into another era. I, I really think this is idiotic. Um, it's almost a time capsule to look at movie posters from other era, for other eras. You could see, oh, this is how people dressed back then. That's how women did their makeup back then. That's the kind of neckties men wore back then. And yes, there were cigarettes everywhere. I, I find this to be so silly. HBO Max, I do denounce you. I must also denounce, very surprised to do this. No one's more surprised than me. The Hustle. The Hustle is a great website. It's mostly a, I think it's a website for entrepreneurs and small business people. But there's a ton of interesting news on there. And I subscribe to their daily newsletter, and I get a ton of great story ideas from there. I mean, it really just so many of the topics that you hear me bring to your attention each week is from something I've read in The Hustle. I love it. Absolutely love The Hustle. And so The Hustle has a very interesting sort of referral program. If I send you an email or share uh, a link to subscribe to The Hustle on social media – you can sign up and I'll get credit. And you can win certain prizes like a water bottle or a T-shirt. And I have referred a lot of people to that, including in the most le- recent email blast that I sent out. By the way, if you want to be on my email list and receive my regular email blasts, just drop me a note and I'll add you to my email list. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. You don't have to say anything. You're welcome to. But you can just say, add me to your email list and I will. But in my most recent email list, I said, look, guys... I am only three referrals away from a sweatshirt. Please sign up, even if you have to cancel later, so I get the sweatshirt. Nice hoodie. Okay? So a bunch of people sign up because I asked them to. And I qualify for the sweatshirt. I think, oh, my goodness, the plan worked. So I go on to order the sweatshirt, which is going to be free. And, look, there are... Three sizes of sweatshirt that I can fit into. One is a little big on me. One fits just about right. One is a little snug. Okay. All three of those sizes were out of stock. Out of stock. So the only sweatshirt that I could get would be in a shirt that was way too small for me. So now I'm left with the decision here. Do I get the smaller sweatshirt and give it to someone now, who's going to want to read? Who's going to want to wear a hustle t- sweatshirt, even if they don't read the hustle? Or do I write to the hustle and try and get something else? While I was deciding what to do, I figured let me rant about this on the radio and denounce them. So the hustle, much like HBO before you, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Ralph Romeo. Ralph Romeo is a frequent caller to talk radio. Many of you have heard him. He does a uh, talk show in the New York area on one of those stations that you have to pay for the uh, airtime on. Uh, But he's decent. He's decent. Good caller. And this guy is constantly begging me to be on the radio. And, I mean, constantly. I get emails from him every week. When can I come on the show? When can I come on the show? And I would say to him, Ralph, what do you want to come on and talk about? His response every single time, oh, I could talk about anything. Well, Ralph, I mean, in fairness, I don't need you to come on and talk about anything. I can talk about anything. 
I like people that are going to be newsmakers or subject matter experts or that if we, we do one of our midnight panels where we have people of different you know, walks of life come together and have a conversation. That's great. So I asked him repeatedly, can you come in studio for one of these midnight panels? No. Can't come in. I'd love to know what he's so busy doing that he can't come in. All right. then, uh, But I'm happy to come on on the phone. No, no, Ralph. Let me know when you're ready to come in. Then he says to me, he actually says to me, well, I will come in if you send a car for me. And the guy lives in New Jersey, Jersey City, I think. Who does this guy think he is? So I don't get insulted. Then the guy emails me again last week, I, I think over the weekend, says, Frank, I'm ready to come on anytime you want me. Just let me know. Said, Ralph, will you come in studio? So he says, yes, he'll come in studio. So we had him slated for the midnight panel yesterday with Josh O'Brien and Johnny Potenza. The guy no-showed. The guy didn't even show up. No explanation. No apology. I heard him on the radio as I was driving back from the softball game yesterday, so I know he didn't suffer from from sudden illness, some sudden bout of laryngitis meets COVID. So the guy is out there. In my book, this fella is now persona non grata. Ralph Romeo, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the people who unsubscribed from my email list after my most recent email blast. Now, you can always see the people that unsubscribe. And, you know, whatever, a handful always unsubscribe. But I must say, I'm denouncing not only the people that um, unsubscribed, but I'm denouncing specifically Paul Rotella, the president of the New Jersey Broadcasters Association. Now, I know Paul forever, and I go to all his functions... I get whatever station I'm working at at any given time to support all his functions. I have been there for him time and again. I bought him. He's not in the best of health now, so I don't think he's drinking. But when he was drinking, I would buy him a whole bunch of drinks, gave him a cigar one time. I am there for this guy like crazy. Paul Rotella unsubscribed from my email list. And then when you can answer the reason as to why you're unsubscribing from the email list, he che- he selects, I get too many emails from you. What? I don't even send out one a month. And he gets too many emails? So, Paul Rotella, the next time you and the New Jersey Broadcasters Association need something, I will remind you of this day where I said the words, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Jared Ng. Jared Ng is a college student, lived in... um, well, in, in the New York area, college student, 25 years old, killed his mother, killed his mother in an apartment in New York City before disposing of her body in a garbage can in Morristown. He's admitted to this, admitted to this, pled guilty to one count of second degree murder, killed his 65 year old mother, Paula Chin slashed his mother's throat and brutally beat her on the head with the help of his girlfriend. They cleaned up the apartment and brought the mutilated body to a family home in Morristown. After the murder, this 
degenerate, Jared Ng, changed the password of his mother's bank accounts and searched for inheritance lawyers. His motive was to speed up his inheritance of the fortune that the, wo- that the woman he just killed was going to give to him of $11 million. $11 million. I don't think there's a more despicable human being on earth than the kind of person that would kill his own mother for money. Jared Ng, I, I don't care if this guy is mentally ill. I don't care if he's the spawn of the devil. Be, this is the most reprehensible thing a human being could ever do. To, I mean, to think to kill your mother, if there's one person you should never kill, it's your mother. Because without your mother, you wouldn't be here. And your mother, I mean, look, your mother, at least in my case, and I think this is the case for most people, your mother's the only person that's always there for you no matter what. By hook or by crook, you could do anything. Your mother's the only person that will always forgive you. And I don't know what went on that led to this fight. I suspect it was mostly just greed. I suspect that Jared Ng killed his mother because he wanted this $11 million. So Jared Ng, in the most vociferous terms possible, I do denounce you. I must also denounce uh, the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Last Friday, President Biden came clean during a visit to the White House by the South African president, president, the current South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, admitting that he wasn't arrested trying to visit Nelson Mandela. In spite of the fact that Joe Biden said so at least three times in 2020, in the year 2020, he said three separate times that he was arrested trying to visit Nelson Mandela. Now, he then told the South African president that he was stopped trying to visit Mandela. Now, it turns out that's not true either. This is a claim that um, was fact-checked by the Washington Post. They gave him a whole bunch of Pinocchios. Washington Post, not exactly a right-wing media outlet. And um, this was even contradicted from Biden's supporters. So why Biden would lie about this repeatedly, I don't understand. Uh, But he said he was trying to clean up this lie, and he said, um, this is just last Friday, and I said once, I said I got arrested, I wasn't arrested, I got stopped, prevented from moving, but he was extremely gracious. He said at least three times that he was arrested, attempting to visit Mandela on his prison near Cape Town. Um, None of this is true. None of what he said is true. And unfortunately, this fits a pattern of the president lying to make himself look like he was at the center of historical events that he wasn't like. It's almost, I, I, I hate to even use the comparison, it's almost Johnny Russo-esque that he inserts himself into all these events. In January, Biden told students of historically black colleges in Atlanta that he was arrested during civil rights protests. He wasn't. He wasn't. There's no no record of that, no paper trail of that. He wasn't. In September of last year, 
He told Jewish leaders that he remembered spending time at and going to the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh after the mass murder of 11 people there in 2018. The synagogue said he never visited. And the White House later said he was thinking about a 2019 phone call to the synagogue's rabbi. Now, you have to either believe that Biden is so out of it that he would confuse a phone call and a visit, or that he was lying again. Also in September of last year, Biden told an Idaho audience that his first job offer came from local lumber and wood products business, Boise Cascade. The company said that was news to them, and Biden had not previously described an interest in moving to the state. In May, Biden said at the Naval Academy's graduation ceremony that he was appointed to the military school in 1965 by the late Senator Caleb Boggs. A search of Boggs' archives fails to turn up any evidence of the appointment. So I'm not just denouncing Biden for this lie that he told last Friday and has repeatedly told and compounded with another lie. But I'm denouncing him because this fits a real problematic pattern for the president. And do you remember what ended his presidential campaign in 1988? It was this kind of behavior. So, look, I voted for Donald Trump, and we know Donald Trump's relationship with the truth is not the best. But can you imagine if he would have had this same pattern of lies? He would be excoriated. Biden, I I mean, uh, President Trump said the wrong thing about how a tornado was going to hit the Gulf Coast. And all of a sudden, that was a major scandal. Sharpie gate, I think that was. And yet, aside from the fact checks, fact checking these specific statements, the silence on this has been really deafening. President Biden, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the vandal who vandalized the Washington Monument on Wednesday with graffiti. It was vandalized with vulgar anti-government statement in red paint. Um, They have made an arrest and charged Sean Ray Deaton with trespassing, tampering, and vandalism. Um, I mean... It was really, they threw red paint onto the base of the Washington Monument. They've got the F word on there. I mean, why somebody would ever do this, I will never understand. I will absolutely never understand this. And apparently they said it could take several days to clean up all this vandalism and graffiti. The top layer of paint is off, but uh, apparently it is still defaced. So cleaning the monument um, could take a little while. Uh, I find this reprehensible. To vandalize and spray graffiti and spray profanity onto the Washington Monument. I mean, shame on you. So, Mr. Sean Ray Deaton, I do denounce you. I must also denounce... Crystal Burrell and Katrina Patterson. They are correction officers at the uh, at Rikers Island. 
who smuggled drugs into Rikers Island, because that's what Rikers Island needs more of, drugs. And these two New York City correction officers have pled guilty to accepting thousands of dollars in bribes for smuggling these drugs. They were being bribed by members of the Bloods gang. And not only drugs, they were sneaking in mobile phones as well. And the police commissioner called this, and she's right, immoral, unethical, and without integrity. And what kills me about what these two COs have done is there are so many hardworking correction officers in New York and around the country. And this allows all of them to be tainted because of their behavior. Now every inmate is going to question the correction officer and think they might be able to be bribed. It undermines the credibility they have with the inmates and the public. And uh, these people are public servants, and I hope they throw the book at these people. Crystal Burrell and Katrina Patterson, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Jeffrey Miller, a fan, football fan, who was arrested for throwing a water bottle at the Cleveland Browns owner, Jimmy Haslam, in the final moments of Sunday's loss to the New York Jets. You know, I I don't understand people. I get that you get into sports. I get into sports, too. In my life, I would never think of throwing a water bottle at a team owner because of something that happened on the field. This guy's a 51-year-old man. And he's still so emotionally immature that he's throwing a water bottle at a team owner? I mean, give me a break. Jeffrey Miller, I do denounce you. And finally, I must, in in a story that is stunning proof that sometimes there's nothing quite like the real thing, Doug Ramsey the COO of Beyond Meat. You know Beyond Meat? They make great stuff. We we get a, my wife is a um, vegetarian, so we use a lot of Beyond Meat products. Uh, and and I'm practically a vegetarian too. I don't eat a lot of meat, but um, we you know the, we get the Beyond burgers and the Beyond sausage. And the Beyond Meat COO Doug Ramsey was arrested over the weekend. After a physical altercation in a parking garage after a football game, he was charged with terroristic threats and third-degree battery. He bit a man's nose after the college football game. This fella, Doug Ramsey, uh, was apparently involved in some sort of a road rage altercation. The guy bit another guy's nose after the other guy's car made contact with the front tire of Doug Ramsey's car. I would say this is a guy that has some anger management issues. All right. Um, If you want to comment on anybody I have denounced, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Barry Goldsmith is here. We're going to talk travel in just a minute. Um, always look forward to seeing Barry Goldsmith. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's very nice to go traveling to Paris, London, and Rome. It's oh so nice to go traveling. But it's so much nicer, yes, it's so much nicer to come home. It's very nice to just wander the camel route to Iraq. It's oh so nice to just wander, but it's so much nicer, yes, it's oh so nice to wander back. The great Frank Sinatra, he said it best. Uh, It is nice to go traveling, but sometimes it's nice to come home. Uh, It's always nice to see uh, my old friend Barry Goldsmith. He's not that old, uh, but we have a a relationship uh, that goes back uh, about uh, two decades. He is a professor of uh, architecture and comedy and a travel expert who has not only created been there, haven't done that as a tour and lecture series, but he's actually been to 117 countries around the world. That is, that's got to be somewhat exaggerated, Barry. No, uh, but I have to qualify that, but not in the same week. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely now, is that not. one of those things? Some pe- some countries are recognized by some uh, entities, but not recognized by others, like, uh, like Donetsk in uh, eastern Ukraine. The Ukrainians say it's not a country. The people in Donetsk say it is. Uh, that kind of thing. Is there some wiggle room in that 117? Well... I'll I'll tell you, I do travel math, okay? 117 countries. I have to uh, uh, subtract um, East Berlin, and I have to subtract uh, uh, North Vietnam. So it kind of changes. It it changes So one day it could be 115. Next day it could be 119, depending on what's happening in global politics. Or to close the sound of music. I'm 117 going on 118 countries. (laughs) I'd love to get a look at your frequent flyer miles, that's for sure. Well, you've done some – you're doing something now that I think is really interesting. You have teamed up with another travel expert, a reporter that a lot of people may remember from Spectrum uh, News New York One, Valerie Delia, and she was on the Today Show as well. You guys are creating an upcoming TV travel series for older travelers, people that are 55-plus. It's called You Haven't Seen It All. Right, right. That's actually based on something my grandfather used to say, now I've seen it all. <laughs> but even if you're a, an avid tra- traveler, there are places that you haven't seen. And I've had a travel column going on 13 years called Been There, Haven't Done That, recommending sites around the world, this by most tourists and even many locals. So when and where will people be able to see this show? Well, right now we're getting offers from different net- networks. Okay, so okay. it's in development. It's, it's, in, okay. it's in development. So we'll keep an eye on it. But, but right now I know it's going to happen because I want to make sure, being that it's television and not radio, that people know I am over 55. <laughs> so I have an appointment with a plastic surgeon for a face drop. <laughs> a face drop, not yes, a face drop. Right, to make me look older. Of course, a face drop. <laughs> Why would you want to look older? Because you look too youthful to apply it's, to the 55-plus Exactly, ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you a imagine, nice problem to have. Can you imagine a makeup person saying, okay, you know, guess what? No, uh, 
I want more dark circles under my eyes, please. <laughs> I, yeah, I think Jack Benny may have uh, tried that when his uh, experimental 39 phase was uh, was still going on. What is the biggest difference? Because we have a lot of uh, listeners that are in that age group that your show is going to be targeting. What's the biggest difference between someone who's older than 55 when they plan a trip or a vacation somewhere and someone who's, say, between 25 and 45? What's the biggest difference in what those folks are looking for when it comes to making travel accommodations? Well, first of all, it also depends on the on the person. If they're very well-traveled, they want to see someplace new. Uh, for instance, uh, if you've been to Rome 20 times uh, and, and you're older – Oh, come on, I've been to Rome 20 times. But I'll tell them, well, have you been to the Domus Aurea, which is Nero's palace underground? And you know all the hanky-panky that went on there. And Nero's palace is one or two blocks from the Colosseum, where nowadays you have to wait in line for half an hour just on the skip the line line. Mm, oh, no, I, I've seen that line. I've been on it. it is, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a chore. Um, how are things traveling now in terms of COVID restrictions, what are the requirements these days in terms of international travel, especially with respect to testing, with respect to vaccine mandates, with respect to masks? Well, I can tell you things have changed drastically over the last three months. Mm-hmm. I led a press trip to the Azores, uh, which I call the Hawaii in the Atlantic. And you went on the plane and you had to put out your hands. Okay. Uh, not begging for a good meal <laughs> on a plane because airline food is... Right, it's your uh, Oliver Twist right, Exactly, exactly. And uh, they had to sanitize the hands before you would enter, okay? And everyone had to wear a mask. And if you ate your, your on-the-air in-flight dinner, you put down the fork, somebody would run after you with a mask right away. I was in Chicago lecturing uh, just uh, two weeks ago. And uh, no masks on the plane... It was American Airlines, no masks. Uh, the flight attendants serving were not wearing masks either. So it was back to normal, more and, or less. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I just heard yesterday there was a bank robbery and they got they apprehended the criminal right away because even he wasn't wearing a mask. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the Azores. You referred to it as the um, the Hawaii of the Atlantic. How long ballpark does it take to get to the Azores from New York? Okay. It takes about four hours. Oh, that's nothing. Exactly. And uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, There are picturesque villages, uh, and there are volcanic craters. You go in, it's like the... the craters in the United States, nothing compares with them. They're, they're, they're absolutely terrific. And I'm not a nature guy. I'm an architect, okay? And in addition, they have something unique to anything Portuguese. And be it Rio or be it Macau, Portuguese, the sidewalks are uh, a mosaic pavement, all patterns everywhere. It's like no other, you know you're in Portugal or Portuguese territory right away. You have to, in New York... When you walk, you have to look up to see the skyscrapers. In uh, the Azores, you have to look down and see <laughs> the wonderful pavement. It's wonderful. Barry Goldsmith is here. He does the uh, been there, haven't done that 
tour and column. He's on, launching this new show for the 55-plus traveler with Valerie Delia. If you have a question, by the way, about travel, you can call in. We'll be happy to take it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Also, uh, he's also the author of a very interesting book, um, which you can get on uh, Amazon in a Kindle version for free, I believe, called Trumpitecture, Great Design or Erectile Dysfunction. And it it looks at the architecture of some of the Trump buildings. And from what I remember when we spoke about that book when it came out five years ago, some of the Trump buildings as an architect you gave very high grades to, yes. some not such high grades, right? Yes. Uh, the Trump Hotel in Chicago is especially uh, beautiful for the location, too. Because as you know, they say in real estate, location, location, location. It's on the river, and there's another tributary going into it, and it rounds out from one tributary into the Chicago River. So it's absolutely wonderful. It's- All right. Uh, no, that, and uh, so people can check out the book, Trumpitecture by Barry Goldsmith. Thank 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. All right. Um, so you know uh, I always like to uh, pick your brain on places in the news. You've been to a lot of countries, 117 or so thereabouts. Um, where where would you focus on today if uh, you were looking for a city or a place in the news that we could talk about? Uh, for instance, uh, as you know, you're from Staten Island. Right. And I'm from Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Right, the and you, you have a little river, the Kill Van Cull. <laughs> I, I mean, when you think of it, naming a river Kill, I mean, named in honor of the people <laughs> who drown. <laughs> anyway, um, you have on Staten Island the Conference House, where most people don't know. I mean, you don't have to go around the world to find unusual sites. The Conference House was a meeting place of Benjamin Franklin two other people, and I think General Howe, but within a month of the Declaration of Independence to see if they could iron out an early peace treaty. It failed, but nonetheless, Benjamin Franklin loves to travel. He got a rowboat. He went to Perth Amboy, the proprietary house, which was the home of his son, William Franklin, who was a Tory. So as soon as the revolution broke out and really got going, uh... William Franklin, William Franklin traveled to London and never came back. <laughs> so uh, that is interesting. Um, any other cities in the news oh, that sure. you want to talk about? Sure. I mean, Philadelphia. Oh, Philadelphia. Okay. What's happening? It's the city of brotherly love, right? Right. And it's, a sister, and it's also the city of sisterly love, all kinds of love. And in Fairmont Park, uh, there, was, a, there were, was nudity last month. Uh, young people got together. They were riding bicycles in the nude. So uh, actually, it changed from Fairmont Park to Mount Fair Women Park. <laughs> and uh, that's perfect for uh, uh, Philadelphia because Philadelphia is the city of the Constitution. And in the Constitution is the right to bear arms. And they took it one step further. It's the right to bear entire bodies. <laughs> Uh, Philadelphia is a, a great city. My cousin Andrea lives there. Uh, you know, when one of the things I found being in New York is a lot of times you never check out the sites that are worth seeing if you've spent your whole life in a place or if you live in a place. If I'm giving my uh, cousin Andrea a place that she really should check out near where she lives, well, what should she check out in Philadelphia? Uh, okay, there's the Rodin Museum. People go to Paris to see the Rodin Museum. But Philadelphia has its own Rodin Museum on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. And the Benjamin Franklin, if, if you've been to Paris and you've seen the Champs-Elysees, 
it was basically imitated in Philadelphia, linking two squares of the museum and two museums, the Franklin Mint and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And stuck between the two is the Rodin Museum. And speaking of nudes, if you like nudes, Philadelphia is a place to go. They have lots of nude Rodin sculpture, including a sculpture of the great French author, Honoré de Balzac. And uh, let's put it this way. He's got a bit, as the French would say, avoir de poids. <laughs> and, and guess what? You don't see his, his special uh, – well, let's put it this way. Uh, the, uh, the statue, nude statue of Balzac – has no ball sack. <laughs> Fair enough. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Barry Goldsmith's here. We've been talking a lot about Russia. Russia's obviously in the news. Uh, they're mobilizing the military. What, did you, what do you think of the 1,300 protesters that are arrested and being punished, uh, sending them to fight in Ukraine? Okay. I think America should be more patriotic about that and help out. I think Ron DeSantis should send over a charter plane and take those 1,300 Russian protesters to Martha's Vineyard. Come on. <laughs> we talk a lot about UFOs on the on this show, and we've even talked with a few people, including this week, who have claimed that they've been abducted or been probed by uh, extraterrestrials or some something like that. Um, you are a sightseeing expert. Are you also a, see- a sighting expert in terms of sightings of UFOs? Well, what I'd like to know is when I travel someplace, I would not travel to China, uh, look at it from the airplane, and and just decide to go back and not land. Okay. <laughs> so when you think of it, they they don't get their money's worth. Okay. Uh, the other thing is uh, Washington State, ironically, has the highest number of UFO sightings. Really? Now, yes. Now, I've been to Washington State. Now, what I'd like to know is, I've been there more than once. I hate to say this, people in Washington, it rains all the time and the skies are cloudy. How the hell could they have the most number of UFO sightings when you can't even see the top of a mountain? Hello? Uh, that's a fair question, and the next time you're here, I want to ask you about uh, places that are well-known for Bigfoot sightings as well. Just going back to the Russia-Ukraine situation, um, obviously things look very bleak in Ukraine. There's a refugee crisis. A lot of people forced to flee. A lot of people lost their homes. A lot of buildings destroyed. Can you see, based on your something of a historian as well, but can you see a future where people will actually go to Ukraine as a tourist destination again? Well, I've been there, and I was there uh, leading a press trip. I was there more than once. And somehow when you travel and there's some kind of uh, earthquake or war, it hits home even more. And Mm. uh, there's a city to me that's an inspiration for Kiev and Ukraine in general, and it's Dresden. (laughs) Dresden was totally destroyed by carpet bombing less than – Less than 10 weeks before the end of World War II. I mean, one could say, what a shame. But they built, they built and restored the entire city. And mm. today, it's a gem. And to give you an example on culture and tourism over politics, even the communists in East Germany restored the opera house, restored really? the museums. Wow. 
Uh, and I think culture and tourism unites people, and that's, that's why I'm all for it. That's a great, uh, great perspective. Uh, I mentioned a, a big archaeological find in uh, one of the Palestinian territories the other day, and I'm hopeful that there can be future cooperation between the Palestinians and the Israelis just on the, arche- oh, the exactly. archaeological front. Uh, stick around. We'll take a couple of calls. 800-848-9222. Henry is in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Hi, good evening, or good middle of the night. <laughs> uh, uh, I've uh, come up with a a STEM, you know, uh, a science, technology, uh, engineering, math idea relating to travel. And it takes you to off the beaten path and, uh, for the moment, never visited places. Uh, what the idea it relates to prime numbers, and uh, the idea is you find uh, a line of uh, latitude that's a prime number, like 41 north, and a line of longitude like that's a prime number, uh, for instance, 79 west, and you visit that exact spot, which you can find with your uh, uh, GPS function on your phone. Now, there is a famous place uh, that is at those two coordinates, and that is Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Um, there are other uh, uh, places that I've visited that are a prime number intersections, which are Exeter, New Hampshire, so, Henry, you, you think this is a trend that would catch on, people wanting to visit places because they have the longitudinal and latitudinal coordinates of prime numbers? Well, it's not a trend because I'm the only one that I know of that's uh, even thought of the idea. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is uh, for these places that have uh, that are off the beaten path total quite often – for instance, there are three in Montana and six in Alaska. Uh, it, it becomes kind of an adventure uh, travel and a serendipity. And it's also uh, how will these places change over the years? Right. But couldn't you uh, say that of any place, not just prime number places? I mean, uh, Barry, do you get the sense that people are really eager to visit places that have something to do with prime numbers? Um, that's odd. No, saying that's odd would be meaning uh, three, <laughs> five, five right. seven. I, I, I just want to say something because this gentleman spoke about latitude and longitude, okay? Uh, if you're really interested in seeing a fascinating place that has to do with latitude, latitude uh, there's – it's in, in Ecuador, the country of Ecuador, there's the equator. And – you know how people say uh, that water flushes one way north of the equator? Right, sure. Is and that true? Say, well, what they have is they have a sink on one side of the equator and a sink on the other side of the equator, and you can see for yourself. Oh. It's true. And speaking of oh, that's pretty changes in latitude, yeah. uh, sometimes in, in the 20th century, they discovered that uh, the equator was a, a, a few uh, blocks uh, away so there's a monument to where it was oh. and the new. So if you want to see two latitudes, you go to the equator in Ecuador. 
which is named after it. Well, that's uh, very apropos. All right. Very uh, geographic, ve- geographically inclined uh, trip. Barry, this has been fun. Uh, let's do this again soon. you got to keep us posted on this sh- show that you're doing yes, with Valerie Delia. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, uh, they can go to ProfessorBGoldsmith.com, right? Or they cannot go there. All right. No. But how can I'm, they get in touch with you? I'm redoing uh, my, my website. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah, they can... Uh, Email me at barry.goldsmith at aol.com. You know who I feel sorry for? Who? Anybody whose name is Dot. <laughs> I bet you their favorite dance is the polka. Am I right? Yes, very good. All right. Uh, Barry, it is always a treat to see you, and it's always a treat to have you uh, in studio. Thanks for making thank the you, trip. And congratulations on your syndication. Oh, now. thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, w- one day we're going to have you, w- maybe we'll do a, a, a special travel segment about all the cities that we're heard in, and then we can, we can do something that about that. That would be great. Yeah, I've that'd been be fun. to them. And yeah, great. Yeah, that'll be great. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. Coming up next, we'll do something fun. What it is, I'm not quite sure, but you can bet it'll be fun. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, asking for trouble, I'm sure, but fortune favors the bold. Am I right? And whatever. You go to uh, Rumsfeld said once you go to war with the army you got, not the one you wish you had. You do a radio show with the callers you have, not the ones that you wish you had. So let me say hello to E. Frank in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes. Uh, good morning, uh, Frank. Uh, I'm going to regret this, but I'm going to say to you, you, you had a guest uh, several, maybe a year ago, who's not going to forgive me for saying what I'm going to say is uh, Dr. Uh, Jacobonis, who was talking about childhood vaccines and polio, and the co-curator of uh, the newly uh, created uh, hip-hop museum, uh, Prime Minister Pete Nice, uh, Peter Nash, formerly of the hip-hop group Third Base. They listened to this show and they don't think very highly of the things I say because, you know, I would just like to say uh, I felt very uh, bad when you said that Joe Biden is a liar. You can't say that Joe Biden lost the campaign in 88 because of his inept uh, attitude towards the truth. I think that maybe President Biden is uh, trying to uh, actually help our country and protecting his family, even though many people don't like the idea of what he's doing. And he has to make up these stories to defend his uh, political career. And maybe you, Frank, have not stated to the public that maybe Joe Biden is trying to do more good than evil by stating certain things to the public. Well, the way okay, let, let's, go, let's go through that, E. Frank, right? So how does lying three times about getting arrested trying to go see Nelson Mandela, how is that something that helps the country? 
Well, let me say this. I mean, uh, you honestly have friends, and uh, you create friendships over time, and you wouldn't uh, betray your friends by telling them things that are not true or, or sending them to sending to a point where they could hurt themselves by a lie. But I think that he would help people by saying things that would help them not get into trouble with situations that, you know, you might say that's auto-suggestion. That's the only thing I can think of, Frank. All right. Well, I, you have not convinced me, I must say. Look, I, I'm not here to say don't vote for Joe Biden, right? If you want to vote for Joe Biden, vote for him. Uh, I mention this because it's become a troubling trend, and unless he's called out on it, he's going to keep doing this. Additionally, I think there is something of a double standard in terms of how certain elected officials are covered when it comes to their relationship with the truth, personally. Um, Hey, you know what my wife and I have started watching? So we finished the show that we were watching, uh, Only Murders in the Building. Loved it. It was great. And one of the great things about that show was that it was a half hour. So I was prepared to just, well, I'll only watch one show at a time. And I was prepared to um, just resume our cheers watching. And um, <clears throat> the my wife wanted to pick a new show. We're, we haven't abandoned our cheers watching, but she wanted to pick a new half-hour show. So I carry on my mobile phone a list of all of the shows that I'm planning to watch when I'm either independently wealthy or unemployed. They're all great shows that have one thing in common. I have not seen one minute of one episode of it, right? They're all shows that I've been told have been great. They get critically acclaimed, popularly acclaimed. It was really big. And so whenever we choose a new show, I will let my wife pick the show from this list on my phone. Here's my phone, honey. Go ahead. So she chooses... About a week ago, the show Ted Lasso. Uh, Ted Lasso, it's a it's a it's a sitcom, but no, I'm not even going to say it's a sitcom because that almost sounds a little formulaic. It's a comedy about an American football coach who's hired to manage a British soccer team, and it's sort of a fish out of a out of water. Uh, comedy and Jason Sudeikis is the star. So we watched the first episode, and I think both of us had the same initial reaction, which is really this is what all the fuss is about. This is what every the, the show that is winning all these Emmys and everything. And we both didn't get it really, but you really can't judge any show um, too harshly by its first episode. So we watched the second episode, and lo and behold, by the, we liked it. By the third episode, we were hooked, and we've now seen the first four episodes of uh, season one, and we are absolutely loving this show. And you know what it is? You know what's so refreshing about this show is the main character, this guy Ted Lasso, is such a, a nice guy. And while the shows, well, the show might seem kind of silly at times, the themes of the show are the kind of things that everybody deals with. 
um, helping people get along with one another, uh, helping dealing with challenges in your own life, in your own relationships. It's really, it's so good. And it's funny, the last episode we watched, my wife remarked to me, I think during or right afterwards, she said, um, I really like Ted Lasso. He's such a nice guy. She said, watching him makes me want to be a better person. And it's funny, when I, w- I really feel, and some of you may disagree, but I really feel like I am a guy that goes through life with the best of intentions. And I really try to help everybody that I can and support everybody and root for everybody. And I really think that almost the root of every problem that I end up getting myself into is because I end up trying to help someone, right? And um, and I wouldn't have it any other way, right? I, I like that. And it's funny. I said when my wife said that, I said, I feel like I'm Ted Lasso. I, f- I feel like I'm this nice guy that everybody thinks is a sucker. And so um, I was reading some of the reviews early on, not too many because we're so far behind in the show and I didn't want to see any spoilers. But I went, read one review in The Observer, and the life editor of The Observer wrote about this show a year ago. And they wrote, let's face it, it's been a tough year and a half, having been faced with death around every corner, constant anxiety over transmitting the virus, COVID pandemic, closures and everything else. Ted Lasso is the perfect show for our times because the main character um, really always has one thing to say, and that's believe. And all these great shows over the years, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, The Sopranos, House of Cards, Ray Donovan, they all have these anti-heroes, these very flawed characters as the main character. This is a show where it's nice to have a guy that really is the good guy as the main character. So we're enjoying it. If you haven't tried it, I think you might like it too. Your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, the whole world has Aaron Judge fever. Aaron Judge, if you're not a baseball fan, he is a superstar with the New York Yankees. And he is, in all likelihood, possibly even this weekend, he is in all likelihood, going to break the single-season record for American League home runs, the single-season record for home runs by a New York Yankee, and uh, the single-season record for home runs not being on steroids. 
So this is all very interesting. It's very exciting. I'm not a I'm not a Yankee fan, but I find myself rooting for Aaron Judge in part because it seems like Aaron Judge is such a nice guy. So Aaron Judge now has 60 home runs. Um, Babe Ruth, after he hit 60, he made some remark about how nobody would ever do that again. Uh, and <clears throat> he said, I'll see if I can pull up his quote, but um, sure enough, in a 162-game season, I was talking about this a little bit with uh, with uh, Ralph Nader the other day, of all people, um, Roger Maris hit 61, which was really something. And then, ultimately, that record was broken by Mark McGuire, and that record was broken after that by Barry Bonds. But, oh, see, what Ruth said in 1927, when Ruth hit his 60th home run in that season, he said after the game, 60, count them, 60. Let's see some other son of a bitch match that. (laughs) That's what he did. Well, Aaron Judge is that SOB that has matched that Babe Ruth number of 60 home runs. And it has a lot of people asking a lot of questions, among which, how much is an Aaron Judge home run ball worth these days? It's funny, when I was at this wedding the other day, one of the rabbis was asking my brothers-in-law and me, because we were talking about baseball, uh, one of the rabbis said to us, which ball do you think is going to be more valuable? Home run number 61, home run number 62, or whatever he ends up finishing the season with. And it, it led to an interesting discussion. Well, it turns out there are actually experts that study this stuff, experts in sports memorabilia and so forth. Now, he's at 60 home runs. Now, do you know what they estimate? the value of that 60th home run ball is? Matt Blaze, what would you estimate the value is of that 60th home run ball? 60? 60th. Not the record. The record 61 for the American League. 500,000. Okay. Well, so far, Ken Golden of Golden Auctions, he says that he thinks the 60th home run ball is worth $150,000, okay? Other people say that's too low. Uh, Brandon Steiner of Steiner Sports says it could get a little bit more. But most people have it at a minimum of $100,000 because, after all, the record is still 61. Now, most people think the 61st home run ball, the ball that ties the record, is worth minimum $250,000, quarter of a million dollars, if you catch that ball. And the 62nd ball, um, the ball that breaks the record, and any ball after that, they estimate will be worth about half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. Other people think that that's too low. Brandon Steiner, owner of Steiner Sports, says that that ball... The 62nd ball or whatever the final number is for Aaron Judge this year, which could be 62, you know, it's only a few games left. He says if you catch Aaron Judge's 62nd home run ball, 
He said that ball is worth $2.5 million. Easy. Easy $2.5 million. Um, and in part because Aaron Judge is so likable, and in part because unlike Bonds and Mark McGuire, who held this record previously, there's no hint of scandal around Aaron Judge. So my question for you, so Chris Brigandi of Brigandi Coins and Collectibles, he said uh, perhaps some collectors believe that Bonds, McGuire, and Sosa are the real home run champions, but we discredit that notion for obvious reasons. He's talking about the steroids. With that said, we can expect Judge's 60th, so he's in the Matt Blades category, we expect Judge's 60th to be valued at 500000 plus. 61st at $2 million plus, 62 and record-setting at 5 to $10 million. So the numbers that we're talking about for this 60-second home run ball are minimum a $1 million. Oh, excuse me, minimum $500,000, maximum $10 million. Okay, somewhere between $500,000 and $10 million. Question for you is, what would you do if you caught one of these balls? Would you keep it? Would you sell it? Or would you give it away to Aaron Judge or to the Hall of Fame? What would you do? And why? 800-848-9222. Well, let's start with the $150,000 ball minimum, which, again, somewhere between $150,000 and $500,000. Michael Kessler, 20-year-old Yankee fan from New York, New York, was the lucky fan who scooped up Judge's solo shot to the left field bleachers in the bottom of the ninth inning. In return, in return, Michael Kessler caught this ball and received an incredible sum of zero. He received zero. He made the decision to donate this ball to Aaron Judge, which will eventually probably mean it ends up in Cooperstown. Now... This young man was ripped to shreds on the Internet, ripped to shreds. People saying fleeced or I I would have been there negotiating all night. Other people were, you know, calling him names. Um, And look, the guy's 20 years old to have something that's worth a half million dollars and a million or a million dollars. That's life changing. Right. Um. That is a life-changing amount of money, potentially, for a 20-year-old. And he made the decision to give it away. Michael Kessler was interviewed by several sports media outlets after he caught that ball and made the decision to give it away. This is what he said. Describe what happened. You saw the ball. Just describe the moment. Uh, it hit the top of the top of the bullpen, hit off someone's hand. I just reached and grabbed it. And then you were on the bottom of the pile, huh? It wasn't so much of a pile. I tried to get off to the side and get out of there as quick as possible. So he gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars with this move. 
Curious if you would do that. 800-848-9222. So I went back and I remembered the uh, person that caught Mark McGuire's 60-second home run ball. And I remember him at the time because it was so striking to me because they say that ball was worth um, over a million dollars. And that was back in 1998 when a million dollars was a million dollars. Okay? And I remember that young man at the time. And he said that he had no hesitation about giving that ball away. Million-dollar ball for a guy that was working, I think, like part of the grounds crew for the Cardinals at the time. And he hadn't, could have changed his whole life. And he gave it away. Gave it to Mark McGuire. So I was curious, and I remember at the time, I think he got to um, meet President Clinton. Um, and they gave him a, a local Chrysler plant, gave him a minivan. So, so Something like that. I don't remember all the details. But um, I was curious, now that Mark McGuire's claim to this record has sort of been tainted, I was curious how he felt about it. So I went back. And I found this article, this interview that he gave. He was 22 years old at the time. 22 years old. He was working for $40 a day on the St. Louis Cardinals grounds crew. And he caught a million-dollar ball and gave it away. Turns out, even seeing what happened with Mark McGuire, he says he wouldn't change a thing about the decision that he made. He's now a public defender in St. Louis. This is what he said. Being part of this moment led to so many other things in my life. The thinking is that money always helps make things easier, but that's not always the case. With lottery winners, it often turns into disaster. Um, And especially if you look at what the people that caught um, later Mark McGuire balls got, the guy that caught Mark McGuire's 70th ball, the 70th home run ball, you know what he got? He didn't choose to give it away. Do you know what he got? $3 million for that ball. $3 million. So it's funny. My answer, and I've thought about this since 1998, and my answer has always been the same, that I would give the ball back to the player. It's not my accomplishment it's it's the player's accomplishment. It's baseball's accomplishment. It's a moment in baseball history. You should be honored to um, to be a part of that in some small way. You didn't hit the home run. You didn't hit seventy home runs. You're just you're in the right place at the right time. But as I've said before, I think last Friday I agreed to do a pornographic motion picture for five million dollars, and I don't necessarily think that I'm equipped to be in the pornographic film business. However. For $5 million, you know, when you have a family to take care of and a mortgage to pay, that money really can help with a lot of things. When you have college tuition to pay for. And so over the last 10 months, now that I've been a father, I've found myself thinking about money differently than I have my whole life. And I've been thinking to myself, gee, if I was there in the left field bleachers and I caught one of these balls, would I sell it? Would I put it up for auction instead of donating it, as I always thought I would? And I've thought a lot about it. And maybe I've been sort of inspired by this um, Michael Kessler, who seems like a genuinely great human being. 
But I think I would still give the ball away and donate it. And maybe that seems silly. Maybe that seems uh, naive. But I think that I still would. And I'm curious, and no judgment either way, because I had to think about this a long time. And I'm sure if I had this discussion with my wife, she would have a different perspective. But I think I would still give it away. I'm curious what you would do and why. And I went back and looked because I remembered what happened with the Mark McGuire ball. I did not remember what happened with Barry Bonds. And because Barry Bonds not only holds the single season record, he holds the all-time home run record. He broke Hank Aaron's record. And I thought, what happened with the guy that caught his record-breaking ball? Well, the guy who caught that ball was a Met fan, which I did not know. A Met fan... um, by the name of Matt Murphy. It's always the Mets. 21 years old at the time. And it turns out that he was only at that game on a whim. And he and his friend, Amir, were on their way to Australia for a vacation, and they both decided to catch a giant game while in San Francisco. Turns out, after a melee in which this guy ends up with a ball, I mean, there's a brawl. Over this ball, he secures possession of it. He sells it for $750,000. Murphy dove headfirst into a pile of other people seeking what's basically a round lottery ticket, risking life and limb. Every Everyone landed on his leg so that the pressure hurt the most. There was a point when he couldn't breathe, but he wasn't worried about breathing. He was worried about not letting go of the ball, and he emerged with it. Bloody blood gushing from his nose and his mouth from fans clawing at him trying to get the ball. But he had the ball. So he sold it. Went up for auction, Sotheby's auction house. And after a spirited bidding, he was able to get $752,467. You know who paid it? The fat, famous designer, Mark Echo. What did Mark Echo do with that ball after he bought it for $750,000? Gave it away. Gave it to the Hall of Fame. Donated it to the Hall of Fame. So what would you do with that $750,000? Buy a house? Go to Vegas? Right? Listen, I know it may seem like this is not as nice a guy necessarily as Michael Kessler or the fellow that caught the Mark McGuire ball. The first thing this guy did the guy that caught the Barry Bonds ball was give half the money to his friend Amir, who he went to the baseball game with. Now, why? Because they made a deal. He said, uh, this is a quote, as ludicrous as the deal may sound, we still made a deal, and I'm not that type of person. Both men, knowing that they were attending a potentially historic game, they made a pact beforehand that in the highly unlikely possibility that either of them would catch the home run ball, they would split the profits. And this guy kept his word. So if you catch, maybe it'll be one of you. I know the Yankees are on the road this weekend, but, uh, This weekend, I think, right? No, uh, or they back home. I don't remember. I've lost track. And, and um, Used to be the Mets and the Yankees were never home at the same time. Now that has gone, they don't do that anymore. But um, the if you were... The person that caught Aaron Judge's 61st, his 62nd, or whatever ends up being his final home run this year. What would you do with it? 800-848-9222.
Let me begin with Joe in Ron Kunkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, great show. Um, I've been following Aaron Judge. Let me give you a quick little story before I tell you what I would do. Um, my dad was in the hospital. He was dying. Uh, he told me prior to this, watch out for this guy. He's going to be a superstar. And I, I was like, all right, Dad, whatever. And in the hospital, every time I'd go visit my dad five years ago, he would ask me, tell me what Judge did last night. And uh, the Sunday before Father's Day, um, Saturday before Father's Day that year that my dad passed, he said, he grabbed my hand and, he, you know, he told me, you know, that he loved me and everything. And he said, make sure you follow this guy. And boy, was my dad right. And my dad knew baseball. He was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Uh, he despised the Yankees. And uh, he said, you could just tell by looking at this guy that he's another another Derek Jeter. Um, you know, no scandals, uh, just a good person and a great role model for children. If I was to, to catch this ball, I would return it to Mr. Judge. I would give it to him. I wouldn't want anything, maybe an autograph or something. I already do have an autograph for him. And I think it's his property for him to pass on to his children or whatever he would want to do with it. It's not mine. And I think it would be an honor just to shake his hand and meet him. Yeah, I, I'm with you. You know, I'm in the. I think we're uh, we're kindred spirits. I'm sorry your dad passed, but uh, I'm I'm glad that he got to see um, you know some highlights of Aaron Judge's uh, playing career while he did. It is also going to be interesting to see if Aaron Judge remains a Yankee next year, because can you imagine if you're a big Yankee fan like this guy Michael Kessler, for instance? Can you imagine if you're a Yankee fan and you catch Aaron Judge's 61st or 62nd home run? And you know you've got a million dollars in your hand, two million maybe. And you such a Yankee fan, such an Aaron Judge fan, and you decide, you know what, you're donating, you're giving it to Aaron Judge. And then the next year he signs with the Mets or the Red Sox. I have to think uh, that if you're a diehard Yankee fan, you'd be kicking yourself. Gee, this guy won't even stick around with the Yankees. I'm going to, I should have kept the money, right? I don't know if that would play a role in your decision-making. Tell me, uh, you know what I do think? I don't know if Aaron judge is going to stay with the Yankees, but I would think that judge goes to California next year. Uh, Maybe, maybe the Dodgers, right? Uh, Maybe, you know, imagine the money money he could get from the Dodgers or the angels. Um, But I don't know. I don't know. He, you know, he's been such a great addition to the Yankees. Uh, I'm sure they'll, They'll give him whatever amount of money he wants if he wants to stick around. Dave in Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. How's it going? Good. Good. Uh, I don't know if you remember or not, but in 2011, when Derek Jeter hit his uh, three, got his 3,000th hit, it was a home run right. to left field. That. Sure. Right. And it was not, not, a, not, a, not a pile on. The ball just bounced right in front of the guy. And he picked it up and he held it in the air, and they took he took uh, he got pictures with Jeter, and uh, he said they said the ball was worth a million dollars, and he said I don't want the money, and he says I'll go make my money, my own I'll make my own way I don't need I don't want the million dollars, and uh, he got some autographed baseballs and bats. And 
If I was him, I would have said, fess up the million dollars. But you, you would have sold it? So I would have sold it for a million dollars. And I think anyone who doesn't sell uh, Aaron Judge's 61st and 62nd is going to be worth more. Because that's the right. Right, of course, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a million, two million, whatever, you know. Um, I mean, the economy's bad, you know. I mean, no, hey, I, like I said, I don't think anybody would blame someone, um, you know, for for selling it and getting the money, right? I don't think it, I don't think so at all. So look, I respect your honesty. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there that say I'd give it away, I'd give it away, and yet when they're holding a million dollars in their hand. And they think of all the good that they could do in their own lives and in the lives of family members with that million dollars. All of a sudden, they'd be singing a different tune. So it's easy for people to say it until they're in that position. I'd give it away. You would give it Absolutely. away. Absolutely. 100%. There's no doubt in my mind. Because, first of all... Are you even a baseball fan, though? Not as much as I was, uh-huh. when, I was when I was younger. But I will say this. I wouldn't feel right keeping the ball only because the home run hasn't even been hit yet. And that ball is already worth money. Right. You know what I mean? And I wouldn't feel right. That ball should go back to the player. Really, the ball should go to the Hall of Fame. Well, I imagine that's what they would put it. I mean, that's what Mark Echo uh, did, right? I mean, I don't so, think Aaron Judge is going to keep it in his house. Yes. I wouldn't want any money. This is what I said to Ken before. I said, he said, what would you do? I said, this is what I'd want. I wouldn't want money. You don't have to give me $3 million. I'm not going to sell the ball. This, I is want, pretty, this is pretty good, too. I want a Yankee suite for life. They're not going to give you that. Why not? They're not. They gave me $3 million? Okay. The, Why can't I get a Yankee no, suite? But the, All right, at least tickets? No, but the people that are giving you the $3 million are not the Yankees. It would be a private collector. But I'm just giving the ball back. I'll give it back to the Yankees. Right. But, uh, okay. So <laughs> That's not a good trade-off? No. But see, you you started out like very altruistically, and then you're you're just selling it for another different f- a form of something else. But I'm still giving it back. I'm not holding out. I'm not going to an auction and be like, here, here, give me the biggest price. Here's what I want. Here's the ball. This is all that I want. When I go to a bar. And the bartender gives me a martini right. in exchange for twelve dollars. <laughs> That's what you're doing. You, he's he's not donating the martini. He's selling the martini. You are too, just for a different price. But I'm giving it back no, no. to them you're for ridiculous. sure. Uh, that's absurd. They're getting it back. Uh, uh, I'm not selling it to a collector. Al in Manhattan, straighten us out here, Al. Well, I'm going to be very honest with you. You have a lot of callers with a little with morality, but this isn't one of them. I get that ball right on eBay. I want the most money I can get, and it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, I, uh, I don't think, look, uh, like I said, I don't think anybody's in a position to judge someone for selling this ball. Now, if you use it for to purchase sex, drugs, and rock and roll, then maybe there's people that might cast judgment uh, about you. But look, I mean, look, it's a million dollars is a lot of money. 100000 is a lot of money, right? I can understand it. I can understand it. Steve in Manhattan. Hello. I went to a Yankee game earlier in the year, and I still have the uh, hot dog wrap. I want to sell it for a million bucks. First of all, the guy who uh, caught Jeter's uh, 3,000 hit, it was a grand slam. He asked for a a Yankee suite for the rest of the year, and he got it. And uh, I just want to let the people know he's not with the Yankees anymore. He's with Houston. But Reggie Jackson was paid a half a million dollars a year to retrieve famous home runs and to go to birthday parties. 
and it was one home run. It was either A Rod's 400 or 500. Reggie went out there, out to you know, out to the bleachers, the Yankee Stadium. The guy wouldn't give him the ball, and it was some nipping and tucking. And then it took about a year for the guy to settle with A Rod for whatever he gave him for the money for that baseball. And I will tell you right now, if I caught that 60th home run or 61st, the the last one, providing breaks the record, will be the most valuable. Reggie could come out there with Steve Arino sitting there, and I tell Reggie, listen, Reggie, grab a seat, get a couple of beers, because you ain't getting that ball unless Hal comes out with two million bucks. Thank you, Steve. You know, it's funny. The fellow that caught Derek Jeter's 3,000th hit, which was also a home run, um, he returned the ball to Derek Jeter. Um, Christian Lopez was his name. And they were estimating that that ball would go for minimum $250,000 at auction. The guy that caught it had over $100,000 in student loans. So what would you do? Well, he gave it away. Gave it away. 23 years old, he said, I have plenty of time to make the money. Um, although what Steve said is pretty much correct. He, The Yankees, he didn't negotiate this, but the Yankees gave him four luxury box seats for the remaining 32 games of the year. Now, he didn't get one for life as Matt Blaze is trying to negotiate, but he did. they did give him seats for the rest of the year. Honestly, though, if they said no and we're, not, we're only giving it to you for the rest of the year or something like that, I'd still give it back. I wouldn't hold it hostage. All right, okay, well, we're quoting, we're quoting you. See, right now. I'm a diehard, I'm actually a diehard Yankees fan. I met Judge in July. And I, as much as I love Judge, I'm not giving this ball back for free. Did you tell him that when I'm, you met him? Did you say, like, I want you to know if I catch <laughs> your 61st home run, I'm keeping it? I should have, but no, I, I'm definitely trying to get some sort of money value out of this ball. I'm not going to just give it back. Um, I'm shocked that we haven't heard from Alex Barnard here. I mean, he's not much of a baseball fan either, right? But, yeah, we'll see. I'm sure he'll be weighing in. Uh, we're going to talk with Debbie Schlussel in a minute, and we're going to do the $1,000 Minute momentarily. Gene is at the shore. Hello, Gene. Franco, how you been? Great, Gene. What's going on? Frank. Gene. Back in the day when it was a game. You remember that movie? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, you know and I know it's no longer a game. Just go get a water at the stadium, get a hot dog, get a beer. I mean, you frankly need a loan application. That's true. That's I'm true. Maybe you that could ball for every penny I can get. Yeah, maybe if you get two hundred fifty thousand for it, you'd actually be able to afford a couple of beers at the Yankees, right? I respect what anybody wants to do if they want to give it away, but you know, I I think that uh, it's a business to them. I'm paying the ticket prices. I'm paying the the jersey prices. I'm paying the uh, the cable to watch it, if I catch that ball, selling to the highest bidder. You know, I, look, Gene, I can't argue with that rationale. I cannot argue with that rationale. It's uh, It makes sense. Got to be honest. Mike, makes, a, makes a good point. He, he does indeed, right? I mean, how do you argue with that? Mike in Pennsylvania. How you doing, Frank? Uh, I, met, I met the fellow who caught Roger Maris's ball. His name was Sal Durante. He lived in Bensonhurst. And I believe he got six thousand dollars for the ball, and he got married with that money. Really? That's just, yeah. Sal, Sal Durante did. The other thing is, uh, as far as catching the ball, see, I really believe that Aaron Judd is 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 like a sign from God, and you know, I I'm I'm very big on uh, on this thing with abortion and all, and you know, being an orphan and all. Look at his look at his career. 
You'll be always looking for a sign from God. What's the answer? Well, Aaron Judge is the answer. Hopefully, Aaron Judge, when he goes to sign, okay, he remembers that kid who gave him the ball. Right. And don't be greedy and stays, and stays a Yankee. Let me tell you something. Any guy who's a Yankee, okay, has, has, he's, he's one, one above anything. The Yankees are the team. Even though I was brought up, you know, a Mets fan, the Yankees are the team. And to, to take that NY, it's like when they were talking about going to Jersey. Go to Jersey. But you're not taking the NY. They wouldn't be the New York Yankees. And, and that's it. And, and he can go to any other team. He won't be like he was. All the money, but he won't be a Yankee. He won't be associated with Mantle and Ruth and Jeter. He won't be associated. Yeah, with well, that. you're right, so, Mike. Uh, you know, oh, thank you. You know, Curtis Lee always makes the point about um, WABC. Uh, he always refers to it, I think, both privately and publicly, as the New York Yankees of radio. And I think he's exactly right about about uh, about that. And I think that says a lot about WABC in New York. And I think it also says a lot about the Yankees. There is a certain level of being special. And it's funny. I did just research that. He's right. Sal Durante was a Brooklyn truck driver, 19 years old, when he caught Roger Maris's 61st home run ball. Sold it for $5,000. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $50,000 today. And he used, he was broke, had to borrow money to buy tickets to the game, he used that money to get married. And uh, he, that was real. That's something. Sal Durante, Brooklyn truck driver. Uh, Alex Barnard, you keeping this ball? You donating it? You selling it? I'm selling it, and then I'm retiring from the overnight shift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Are you retiring, uh, Matt Plays, with your... Uh, no. Well, Kenneth, what Never. about you with the million dollars you're getting from this ball? Nah, I'd stay on with you. Oh, that's nice. See, see, now it's nice to know. Nice to know where everybody's priorities. Yeah, I'm not. Are. I'm not. I'm not a brown noser. That's right, Curtis. See, no, yeah, no. he's only saying that because <laughs> because he gets called a brown noser. That's why. All right, uh, Debbie Schlussel's here. We're gonna uh, start. You know what? Nobody said. Not a single person said that they would keep it. Not a single person said they would keep the ball. Mike's in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Tomorrow, Frank. Uh, funny man, and a shout out to Giuseppe and Rakakama. My dad. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Brooklyn Dodger fan, Mets fan, hated the Yankees. I don't have hatred for the Yankees. You know, years ago, I, I met a lot of people, whatever, met Jer- Derek Jeter. Uh, what I would do um, if I uh, caught the ball, um, I would uh, sit down like I told friends when I played poker. I'll sit down like a stupid poker player. You know, let the let the bidding begin. And I agree what you said. Now, no one – you know, uh, no one really is interested in keeping the ball. And that one guy who dove head first and, you know, I'll forget it. I've gone after foul balls. I caught a couple at Shea, whatever. But uh, I'll tell you what, uh, and I think Derek Jeter is a class uh, – excuse me. Derek Jeter was a class act. But, uh, uh, you know, the unbelievable thing about judges, humble, and my guess is he's going to go to the highest bidder you know, uh, for for uh, multi-term contract. But, yeah, I would sit down like a stupid poker player and, hey, let the bidding begin. I don't know nothing. Just give me a figure and I'll get those dead presidents. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right. um, Debbie Schlesel is here, but first we're going to try and give away $1,000 or one one one-hundredth of a Aaron Judge home run ball. Uh, If you want to be the seventh caller to call in right now at 800-848-9222, you get to play the $1,000 minute. And if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, we'll give you $1,000. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Maybe that means some of you will get to relax. Some of you may want to uh, check out a motion picture over the weekend. And uh, Debbie Schlussel is uh, going to give you her picks in terms of what's worth seeing in just a moment. But first, we're going to try and give away $1,000. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Jose in Danbury. Hello. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Jose. Are you familiar with this game? Yes, I am. Uh, all right. So then I won't bother repeating the rules. All right. Uh, let's begin. Where does Santa Claus reportedly live? Uh, North Pole. In what year did Christopher Columbus make his first voyage to the Americas? Uh, 1492. What is the newest branch of the U.S. military? Uh, The space uh, branch. (laughs) Who is the current host of The Tonight Show? Jimmy Fallon. What is the capital of Mexico? Oh, wow. You got me. I think, uh, let's go Mexico City. What hockey player has scored the most career goals? I believe that's Bobby Orr. Ah, no. You were doing so well. Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. Well, well done, though. You got up to question six at a very good pace. So, um, yeah, you did well, but uh, I guess you're not a hockey fan. Neither am I, Jose. I can't blame you. All right, I'm going to put you on hold. Give your information to Kenneth. We're going to send you something nice, okay? All right, thank you. Thank you for playing, Jose. Uh, Stay on top of Kenneth. Sometimes he likes to cheat people out of their prizes. Like, uh, you could see why he would sell that uh, million-dollar Aaron Judge ball. All right. Um, I always enjoy chatting with uh, Debbie Schlussel. Debbie Schlussel is uh, probably best known for her work as a conservative commentator. She's an author. She's an attorney. She was one of the original political bloggers before everybody was blogging about politics. And we also like to take advantage of her expertise as or at least her passion as a film critic. And uh, Debbie, it is great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. All right, Debbie, before we get to movies, let me pick your legal brain for a moment. Uh, The Trump investigation seems to be kicking into high gear. And uh, just this week, it seems like the special master, Judge Raymond Deary, who was uh, suggested by the Trump team, 
didn't exactly seem sympathetic to the Trump argument that he had declassified all these documents and uh, seems pretty willing to let this investigation go forward. What's your analysis of this investigation as at the moment, Debbie? So when we spoke about this a, a little while back, I said that I was a little skeptical of what kind of documents he actually had there. And I said, you know, I'd like to see what they are. And I, that's still my view. But if he did have documents he's not supposed to have that do have sources and methods, as they're claiming, then that is troubling. You don't want people who are former presidents to have that stuff. I would love to see what Barack Obama has in his possession, what Bill Clinton has, um, what George W. Bush has. I, I think they probably all have things they're probably not supposed to have. I do think a lot of this stuff with Trump is is a little bit of piling on. I think a lot of it is we have midterm elections coming up, um, and I think it's interesting. There are all these Trump books coming out again. He hasn't been president for almost two years now, and I just think a lot of this is political posturing that's really unnecessary and designed really – to try and keep him ever from running again, and also to make the Republicans uh, look bad and maybe to divide the center uh, voters away from the Republicans. Um, Again, though, if he does have anything he's not supposed to have, that's troubling. Um, I didn't like how they took the picture of everything spread out on the ground, which we know that they took from, from where it was actually stored. Um, I just would like to see more for myself because the problem is that everything against Trump has become so political. And, you know, as I've told you, I didn't like him personally, but I did like a lot of this stuff he did. And that's why I voted for him each time I could. And um, I just don't like when the Justice Department is used as a tool Mm -hmm. of politics and You know, is that really what's the worst that's going on in this country that the Justice Department needs to use so many of its resources on him? Now, yes, there are people that are favorable to him or could be disposed to him that he appointed who've made some decisions that are against him. And I think that should tell people that, uh, you know, if they're deciding against him, maybe there is something there and he probably should have cooperated over the year and a half or whatever it is that they were trying to get these documents. And I do think sometimes he's his own worst enemy um, in terms of his behavior and also in terms of cooperating and being a little bit um, delusional and, and a bully. But I would like to see really what's going on and we'll never see these documents. We'll never really know for ourselves. And that's the problem. When you use the justice department, as a tool for these kinds of political things, when something is really legit, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. And everybody is a lot of people are skeptical who are, you know, on his side. And I think that that's rightfully so, given the way the Justice Department has been used. What did you make as an attorney? What did you make of um the rather novel legal argument that he shared with your friend Sean Hannity on television this week, that a president can declassify documents just by thinking about it. Yeah, my friend Sean Hannity. (laughs) Um, 
Well, yeah, I think that that is, I think you put it in a very diplomatic way. Yeah, that's absurd. I mean, I do believe that a president can declassify anything they want to. That's part of being the chief executive. But just by thinking. Right, you got to let somebody know. That's (laughs) absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There has to be some kind of demarcation of what you're doing so the rest of right. the government Right, folks have know. to know that it's now no longer classified. That's fair. Okay, um, want to go through a couple of movies. Very new out this weekend, a movie that's been the source of a great deal of controversy, mostly because of what's been happening behind the, uh, the camera, is a film directed by Olivia Wilde, starring a guy, I guess, is her new boyfriend, Harry Styles. The film is called Don't Worry, Darling. What's this film about? Is this film worth seeing? So I did not care for this movie. It's very high on style. As far as story, I I wouldn't even say that this is, at best, a good Twilight Zone episode because that would be an insult, a bad insult to the Twilight Zone. This is really amateurish. Olivia Wilde, I think, is really an affirmative action director because she's a woman. She looks good. She's in an interesting romance where she's basically uh, left her husband, Jason Sudeikis, for this guy that's 10 years younger than her. I went to see this, by the way, at a special screening they held, and there were all these teenage and 20-something girls yelling and screaming and swooning over him. He's a terrible actor, Harry Styles, and I do believe, though, that this is going to do well because a lot of his teenage and 20-something fans are going to show up to see it. Um, It's I figured out what was going on, and once you figure out what's going on in the movie, it's just really not a lot there. It's long, slow, and boring. It's fun to watch the clothing and the period stuff. It's about this woman that's in this 1950s era um, setting like a, that's sort of like Palm Springs, and she's a housewife at home. And her husband goes to work and she starts to wonder, we're in this city called Victory and it feels like nothing ever changes and something weird is going on. And she starts to feel like an unfulfilled, unhappy housewife. When you figure out what's going on, it turns out, you know, I'm not going to give it away or anything, although I wish I I prefer to to save people the time and money. But it's really a feminist, hmm. anti-male uh. movie where the men are really all losers. All right, I'm skipping that one. All right, last weekend there were a couple of interesting films about twins that came out. One is called Goodnight Mommy. What's this about? All right, so this is a remake of an Austrian film. Um, it's a thriller. At first, it's very scary and very eerie, and you wonder what's going on, but you figure out really quickly, again, this is one of those movies that has a conceit that once you figure it out, um, I felt like it was a lot to do about nothing. I did like the first two-thirds of it, but maybe like the end of it, I didn't like the ending, and the last part of it kind of fell flat and was slow to come home kind of a thing. Um, It's about these twins that go to see their estranged mother, and she's wearing this weird thing on her face because she's had uh, plastic surgery or some kind of procedure, and they start to suspect maybe she's not their mom, and something weird is going on with the twins. And when you figure it out, which we figured it out, a friend of mine and I, in like the first five minutes, then it's kind of... I felt like a wild goose chase to nothing. Uh. So it wasn't for me, but it's probably the better of 
this week and last week's new movies. Okay, and what about the other film that has to do with twins, The Silent Twins? What's that about? The Silent Twins? Oh, my gosh. This is horrible. Skip at all costs. It's supposed to be based on a true story. These two British twins who don't talk to anyone but themselves, and they go through therapy. Then, of course, they meet, and by the way, they're black, and they meet an evil white American guy who basically uses them and has sex with both of them. And suddenly they start talking, except they become criminals and burn things down, and they get sent to an insane insane asylum, and one dies, the end. Oh, and they're the most brilliant people in the world, and one (laughs) writes a silly book. Okay, so Silent Twins not exactly getting a rave review. Also out last week was See How They Run. What's that? So this is kind of like an Agatha Christie movie, and it's supposed to be there's a stage production of an Agatha Christie play that's going to be made into a movie in London. It takes place in the 40s or 50s, in the 40s, I think. And Sam Rockwell plays this English detective who investigates there's been a murder on this set. You know, I love a good thriller. I like a good period piece, but I just felt this was kind of slow and boring. And so I really didn't care who done it. You know, it was one of those ensemble casts with a, a lot of different celebrities. It just, it didn't pique my interest. A lot of film, better. A lot of films about women. Um, one, I guess, is The Woman King. Um, this has nothing to do with King Charles or Queen Elizabeth, I assume. No. So this is about this tribe in Africa, the Dahomey tribe, and it's supposed to be another supposed to be true story, except the whole thing is a lie. And when even the 1619 Project, which itself has lied about history and, you know, America's history, it says that we are built on racism. When even they say that this movie is trying to cover up for black racism, I pay attention, and this there was this group of women warriors supposedly that are so strong and can beat up all the men and kill them, which actually didn't happen in history because some French uh, people came and they actually killed 500 of these women that are were so t- tough and strong in the late 1800s. But this Dahomey tribe supposedly is fighting the other black tribes that are selling uh, blacks into slavery from Africa. But in fact, in real life, the Dahomey tribe stock and trade was mm. selling blacks into slavery from Africa. So they weren't fighting slavery. They were the slavers. They also show the white European that come to get the blacks from Africa to enslave them. And it's funny because they actually don't show who really enslaved, who really was one of the major white forces in the slave trade, which is the Berber tribes and the other Muslim slavers. They don't show that in the movie, of course. It's just evil white Europeans. All right, so it doesn't sound like um, any. you're too enthusiastic about anything this week, but if you're seeing, if you have to see something, if you're hard up for something, see Goodnight Mommy. Exactly, and also I would say on Netflix there was a movie I liked called Champion about this uh, Polish boxer, who, a true story, who survived uh, the um, who survived Auschwitz. Uh, that's very inspiring. I also uh, liked on Netflix the documentary about the anthrax attacks right after oh, 9-11. Oh, well, that's interesting. Especially uh, for New Yorkers. Oh, totally. What's that called? 
Do you remember that? I think it's called something like in the shadow of 9-11, okay. the an- anthrax, something or other. If you put in anthrax in the Netflix search button, you'll find Got it. it. I, w- I will check that out. Okay. Um, the, 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 all right. I will check that one out. Um, the anthrax attacks, I think it might be called, if, if that's possible. The anthrax attacks on, on Netflix. Debbie, it's always a treat to talk with you. Have a good weekend. Well, thank you, and I want to wish all your Jewish listeners a very oh, happy yeah. and healthy, healthy New Year, happy Rosh Hashanah. I, I, I'm so sorry. My sister-in-law would never forgive me if I didn't wish you a happy Rosh Hashanah as well. Forgive me for not mentioning that. Thank you. Oh, that's fine. Thank you. Thank you. 800-848-9222. I join Debbie in wishing everybody a happy Rosh Hashanah. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. All right, straight to the phones we go. It is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. Uh, call in and say whatever you like at 800-848-9222. It's time for... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Boris! Google the Charles Campbell shooting. Google the Charles Campbell shooting. Google the Charles... Neil! To all my friends, the Shana Tovah, happy and healthy new year, especially Ellen and Matt. Mike! Good morning, Frank. A friend once labeled me a people pleaser. Agree or disagree... You, Frank Morano, might also be a people pleaser. There- Ter- oh, I'm sorry. I missed the punchline. Terry, real quick. Good morning, Frank. You should do AIR about your interview with John Wayne. Bill Grum. All right. Well, uh, slam the lid. that slams the lid on things for today. Uh, we'll, could, we'll be back on Monday. Uh, Roger Stone's going to be here on Monday. We're going to talk about my pizza artwork. Frank Morano, good day.